Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to another episode of Remap Radio. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and this is episode 12. We got a dozen. Next week will be our baker's dozen. Uh, but this episode, coming to you on August 18th, 2023, uh, features Ricardo Contreras. No baking this week. Gotta wait till next week for the baking. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, you know, you always stiff people at Baker's Dozen. Lots of places <laughs> oh, do. Oh wow! I, oh, I keep I keep an inventory of like which bakeries understand that like when you order a dozen of something, you get thirteen. We gotta like this is this is tradition. This is apprentices like lived and died in poverty. <laughs> God, like baker, ba- baking fans rise baker's up. Dozen. Hashtag the baker's dozen is the fifty dollars video game. It's true. I, I have to admit, I did not even know this was true. I'm learning this right now that a baker's dozen is thirteen. Did not know. I think the way it was explained to me is it's mostly a way to make sure your count is right because it's like better to be give one over. Then give one under because that's what sets people off. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Here today, Renata Price. Hi. And Patrick Klapik. What are we baking? Like, what is the baker's dozen? Just they're just they're hot, like Usually good takes. Like a, I mean, yeah, good takes. <laughs> Those are plentiful. Uh, yeah, we try to the, avoid the hot takes, like nine minute hot takes. That's what we're avoiding. And yet, sometimes you can't help but encounter them. Uh, so yeah, like lots of folks, we've been playing Baldur's Gate three. We've been, you know, excited by it. And of course that's also translated into a pretty booming media cottage industry around that game. And Patrick, one of the things that, uh, you know, you flagged when you got back was that a, an IGN video on Baldur's great Baldur's Gate three and what it represents for what we should expect from the industry had sort of become the focus of uh, a lot of a lot of attention, uh, mostly highly critical from people in game development and across the rest of the game's press. Yeah. So this all kind of starts back in July, like early uh, July, when uh, Zalavir Nelson Jr., who was the standout interview in like the Summer Games Fest interviews that I did, if you listen to those. Um, Salvier had just a tremendous, uh, uh, I just sat there and then listened to someone say really uh, smart things, which is how hopefully, uh, most interviews go. Uh, uh, (laughs) and he is the, um, 
he is the studio head at uh, Strange Scaffold. They have a game coming up uh, soon in September. Also, if you really liked him on the interview, then you'll really like him when he comes on a full episode of Remap Radio in early September. Um, so look forward to that. Uh, they have a Max Payne, a Max Payne alike, if that is a thing, um, called El Paso Elsewhere coming out um, in uh, late September. Um, anyway, uh, Zeller uh, wrote some tweets, um, as we all are uh, want to do. Um, and I'm not going to read the entire thread, but uh, at least worth reading the uh, the original tweet. Like a lot of people, I'm deeply excited about what the lovely folks at Larian accomplished with Baldur's Gate 3, but I want to gently, preemptively push back against players taking that excitement and using it to apply criticism or a, quote, raise standard to RPGs going forward. And then one out of ten. I, I, I implore you to seek out the entire thread that includes additional context of what makes the development of Baldur's Gate sort of a, a unicorn and what Larian has been able to accomplish uh, unique in, in this space. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation in and around that caused a huge spike. Like when you search Zavalier's name on Google, the first thing that comes up is Baldur's Gate three, which for someone who's like a very accomplished, like independent, like a game designer, like studio head, uh, and commentator is like, wow, that's unfortunate. I mean, it's to it's to the point where, and I and I checked this beforehand. If you look up any interview with Zalavir, regardless of who it's with or how many views it had originally, there is at least like a handful of comments of people talking about <laughs> Baldur's Gate three. Wow, it's 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 it's. Cr- I have not seen it quite this bad for like a really long time. I've not seen it go quite this bad since um, God, since one of my Instagram posts got hit. Uh, one of like a years old Instagram post got hit for uh, article I wrote about Halo, um, but it, I mean it's just it's 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 a, a real shit show at, at least in terms of like the amount of attention that has been very suddenly directed towards um, yes a single um, developer yes yes just a, a just a just a death ray and so and then this month you know obviously Baldur's Gate three comes out. Uh, and uh, there's been obviously a lot of chatter about this game. It is one of the biggest, if not the the biggest game of the year, I think to a surprising degree, even as people were like increasingly confident that it was going to be excellent. Um, and uh, so over at uh, IGN, um, uh, his name is oh, Dustin uh, Legiari. Legari. Apologies, I, I, I looked up your name, Dustin, on YouTube. And you always were just introduced as destined. I did. I tried, um, but um, I did. I did. I just I, I put on the work. Uh, uh, Destin is a he publishes videos on uh, YouTube. Has his own YouTube channel. I guess deeply in the Destiny community, uh, I believe. Um, and then also does sort of like video column equivalents for for IGN. Uh, and published a video earlier this week called Baldur's Gate Three is causing some developers to panic. Which that is already headline alone. Not that. We all know this as writers. You don't always write your headlines, right? So you don't want to necessarily let a headline lead you astray. And this video, you know, it's about nine minutes long. Um, essentially, like using Baldur's Gate 3 and its perceived or actual excellence to hammer hone a, a point that we have heard, you know, time immemorial. Like, why do games ship broken? Why can't they be as good as this game, the good game that shipped well? And I didn't listen to last week's podcast, but I'm from what I've been told, it kind of talked about a bug. It's not a flawless game. Like, Larian, the games they make 
are not quite Bethesda-style games in which the bugs are a feature, but they're a little loosey-goosey. And so, like, to pretend that this game is perfect is itself a false premise, but Destin goes on uh, at length to, one, identify themselves as a consumer first, and that the people they're speaking to are not players, not appreciators of video games, but consumers. And what consumers demand is that developers, at no point is there any sort of discussion of executives, the uh uh like any of the other uh sort of pressures that would be on a game development studio that explain why is a game the way it is uh the, the the conclusion you take away from this video is well if developers just tried harder and held themselves to a higher standard their games would be better and more polished but they just don't and larian shows us the path forward without any critical uh unpacking of why does it want a one game ship like this? And why did uh, this game ship that way? In fact, there's a stated ignorance about that uh, exact subject. Uh, he says, and I quote, I know nothing about game development. I believe three or four times. Yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, yes. And the, before refusing to ask any further questions. Right. And look, it uh, not being able to comment on games, being able to have feelings about games, positive or negative, I don't think understanding the process of making them is a prerequisite to have an opinion. But this opinion <laughs> does, you are going to be quickly undercut, which is, I think, what happened in reaction, and which brings us to the reason we wanted to talk about it. Nine minute hot take videos, dime a dozen. That's not going to rise to, like, having a segment on on a podcast like this. But... What made like me think it was worthy of discussion here was pretty much every developer in my timelines, because now I have to use that plural because it's a across what the nine different tabs, uh, was talking about this. And mixtures of anger, mixtures of wanting to unpack and explain here's where this gets wrong. I I definitely point would point people towards uh Brandon Sheffield's uh piece over at insert credit. Um uh, Brandon for, is a, a game, primarily a game developer now, but worked at uh, game developer slash Gamasutra uh, for a very long time, uh, was definitely in our line of work for a long period, uh, and wrote a piece called Yelling is Not Journalism that does a really good job unpacking the video, what's wrong with it, what are some of the reasons that games end up this way, and does so in a very quick, succinct fashion. And so I definitely would recommend people check that out. But I, I get the impression, Ren, as you raise your hand, that you, you've had a lot of capital T thoughts about this and the reaction. I, I have, but first thing I want to do is point someone, uh, point people towards another thing. Um, you know, another person who has like a pretty long thread about this, uh, who actually I think, you know, complex feelings aside, like I think this person like lays out a really good uh, overview of the business stuff uh, and like why I was specifically, so like, listen, I'll, full stop. If you go back to the podcast, uh, what, in July? Hell, I, I basically said as much. Where I was like, yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 does actually worry me a little bit um, for the reasons laid out in, you know, at the very least, like Rami's thread. Because like, I, you know, was working on a game. Um, I am working on a game uh, that was supposed to get funding. Uh, and then the whole industry clamped up very quickly um, because of, like, the recent economic troubles uh, and also, like, shit like this, where, like, the standard is shifting in terms of what gets funded. 
not in terms of like what people can make, but what actually gets money, it has to be a sure bet. It is increasingly has to be a sure bet to actually get any funding at all. And so I think it's actually perfectly reasonable for anyone who's working in the independent scene right now to look at this and get a little bit spooked because now even more publishers are going to be like a little bit worried about working with you. Um, and I think that's a hard spot to be in or a little bit less willing to take a risk on like a smaller project like this uh, or like the one that like I work on. Um, and that's fucking scary. That, 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 that's really scary in terms of like the future of your role in the industry. Because, like, for everyone who makes it, there's dozens of people who don't. And for, like, every major corporate success, there is less funding for projects like this because, like, there are economic incentives to do stuff like this. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've just left this situation really frustrated because I agree with the base point that Zolivier makes and also, like, am frustrated as, like, a critic and journalist um, who feels like work like this reflects poorly on like the entire industry um, and is like a, a symptom of like a completely broken media landscape. Rob, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few, there's a few things about this that leap out. Like, like one, I think some of it is, it is so clear that there are so, so many perverse incentives in the media landscape right now that you are rewarded for just, teeing off uh and in some ways the more thoughtlessly the better like measured arguments uh like arguments with a lot of context aren't going to inspire the most heated feelings uh because they're they they provoke less of a reaction like they're they 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 are sort of designed to have people you know hear a reasonable position and sort of take things in and and broadly find areas of agreement but if you look up like if you just look up, uh, you know, the keywords around the title for uh, the IGN video, you know, there's a, a dozens of videos on YouTube reacting to this video, this entire cottage industry of uh, people, you know, dra- raking IGN and this guy across the across the coals and guys being like, he's right. He should say it. But all of it, you know, kind of highlights the degree to which exactly this type of of take is both designed to succeed by the metrics of like virality and audience engagement uh, that that are currently kind of the, the only lottery you can play as, as an outlet uh, and also is designed to plug into an ecosystem that uh, in some ways, like the, the outrage farm is the modern uh, web ring that, you know, if you like to take it back to the <laughs> blogosphere days, you know, it's like the pissed off react videos is the web ring uh, that used to be at the footer of the page. Maybe I'm maybe I'm alone in this, but like. At least for me, I've been asked, I've been assigned pieces like this. I've I've been assigned pieces like this that were just like a fa- I saw some tweets have a take. Um, it's, I mean, that's very normal. Like, and, yeah, and aggregation is when- normal. It, well, not even just and not even just aggregation, but that like, hey, this is a topic that a lot of people are discussing. Like, do you like do you have a version of it that would allow us to like weigh in? Like you're taking advantage of the quote trending topic, so to speak, or like the, the, the discourse. Uh, and then you get to write that article. There's a headline associated with it. So for people are looking for it. And then in theory, though, you're providing like the measured, interesting your perspective response on that. That is not always necessarily what you get. Well, I mean, there's also, you know, there's supposed to be editorial checks and balances in place as well. You know, like 
good good writing is very frequently the the product of of good editors who like stop people from saying shit that they shouldn't and that will get them in trouble because in in some ways like that is partially the editor's role um and i've been very lucky and that sometimes people have done that for me uh and other times i wasn't uh and i got a ton of shit for things that i look at and i'm like that shouldn't have like gone to print um and so like this is endemic to the literal system that w- people are writing in right now, as well as also being the result of like, in some cases, and I think in this case, like individual failure. I was going to um, say, I, it is true that the system is broken and has per- perverse incentives. It is also possible to just put out a, a poor, like, I actually think that this is actually more of the latter of a, just a poorly informed opinion wrapped up in a take, as opposed to somebody hurriedly, like trying to weigh in on on the topic of the day, and like maybe one leads to the other, but I do think it's more of the latter that like and you know to, to I guess to like Dustin's credit, like has come out and like said that they're listening, they acknowledge there are problems, they're trying to talk to some developers to do a follow up video. You know, I mean, you, know, well, you should have done I, that look, first. I know, but look, <laughs> look, I I realize it's a low standard for like the like the culture that we're in, but. I, you know, at least want to acknowledge, like, they acknowledged there was a, a response, a backlash, and then there's more nuance to it and want to attempt to make a follow-up video, which is different than doubling down and just putting two middle fingers in the air. But the original video, like, all it really sort of does is, like, reinforce already bad, like, gamer habits and pitting developers against consumers, players, however you want to characterize it. And, like, that's almost no more illustrated than, you know, I understand Larian... Go ahead, Rob. Instead of I, I can, you can. Butt well, in. but the the thing here's the weird thing about the here's the thing that strikes me as odd about the video. How it's being painted, and it's painted this way in in uh, uh, Brandon's video as uh, not video uh, Brandon's uh, piece as well is it's it's more inchoate than that. Like it's 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 an angry. It is an angry video. Mm-hmm. But it actually doesn't even it doesn't quite get to the art. Like, it doesn't fully articulate this this point that like Larian can do it. So should you. The other thing that's really mixed into it is a broader sense of like the experience of playing a lot of like live service games and uh, like long running franchises is getting worse that you're encountering more and more hostile design. You're encountering more and more nickel and diming, which is true. That part is true. Well, and that's the thing. It's like one of those, it's like, it's one of the perfect examples of like, the video is authentically pissed off about something, but it doesn't, it hasn't really identified what it's angry about. Yeah. And Baldur's yeah. Gate 3 ends up like setting the stage. And then Zolivir's tweets are just kind of a, well, I am just going to tee off on on this because this defensive reaction I hear from developers bugs me because my experience of the games industry is of like increasingly hostile design, like uh, declining quality in some ways. And that like that defensiveness, that complacency bugs me. And you should be held to a higher standard. That's where that video is coming from. And I think, like, as I said, it hasn't it isn't it isn't sufficiently thought through to like hook together these arguments and like talk, like bridging the gap between like, why does Baldur's Gate three feel this way? And like destiny doesn't 
you got to talk about like why those are two really different games and the context they emerge from. But the, 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 the video can't quite get there because it hasn't really thought through these issues. And I think that's partly the, the problem with a situation like this. This video comes under an IGN banner. The expectation is kind of that like if you're IGN, you kind of know what's up. You know, you have mm-hmm. you have a pretty authentic incredible journalistic outfit that you're that you're attached to you have connections like IGN should be speaking from a place of like a little more authority here and not from a position of like I'm really angry haven't really figured out what I'm angry about but like <laughs> Baldur's Gate really good makes me hate other things <laughs> so yeah. one of the sorry Kato please oh no I was just gonna say it felt it feels like because it's so like um Unnuanced. It basically like feels like it amounts to nine minutes of saying greedy devs, lazy devs. Like that one sit, like that one phrase can basically summarize the depth of the argument and where that sort of like, uh, point of view kind of like stems from on in like greater like internet circles. It feels like, which is just like a, yeah, an unnuanced look at like, obviously things that um i don't like as a gamer are being done uh for greedy and uh lazy ver- uh, reasons that uh everyone who ever touched the game is responsible for right this kind of like blame like the, there's no like thought through of like what the structures that create these uh, kind of, we simply like, said you know, no monetizations are all of our games would be at the peak of Steam and it also, concurrence. And That's also, just what would happen. It also fully it, it ignores other games that like, like it it it, it, it like Z- 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 Zalavir's a fucking indie dev, <laughs> right? It ignores right? the fact that <laughs> there are so many games like this in indie dev that aren't as bombastic or as large in scope. But are still good games without microtransactions. Like, if you want, if you don't want microtransactions, let me talk to you about fucking itch.io. Like, let me talk well, to you about Zal- the games Zal- that specifically, exist. Yeah. Like, in the interview I did, in a lot, you, so you want to go look at those videos that Ren pointed out people are commenting on. A huge through line, and this, it makes it like especially like ironic and funny that like Zalavir got wrapped up in this. Yeah. Like, how do you run ethical, like financially sound, game studios like it's a huge cornerstone of his personal like philosophy towards a game development and so like (laughs) and he talks to everyone he loves talking to people like you could have talked to him about that and so to pick that person who has made like when you chat with Zalavir he is going to steer you towards that because it's something that means a lot to him right well part of the problem is that like I think the thing that Kato and Rob are touching on is the fact that like laborers don't exist in this video. Labors are, people who do labor are not mentioned once. What's being talked about is like developers as an entity. So like there is a personification that is going on of like the entirety of the studio Bioware is one entity comprised of 500 component parts in terms of its, in, in terms of its people, but it is an entity that can be like interacted with and like directly lobbied. Um, I'm like that but is. It, it didn't a um. Sorry, just interrupt for a second, and then you can go back to your yeah. point. But um, Kato, wasn't there somebody that was getting dragged in the Destiny community just recently for being like, "Why isn't the game better? They have this many employees." Like there, this like this specific sort of issue. Did you do? Did you see that or like remember? Yeah, it was, it was. It was a bit. It was a bit back, but it was definitely. It was definitely this sort of like 
just like they have so many people why isn't the game better of just yeah. like not understanding yeah. what development cycles are the fact that destiny puts out new content at the speed that it does is kind of crazy honestly like every three months there's like new story content that then drip feeds for the next like six months or whatever like it, it's it was a a wild just kind of not like sheer numbers can seem you know really large when you think about like man like 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 worker hours right mm-hmm. but like what people don't understand or don't get is how many of those like what the worker hours actually like translate into as far as game dev goes right like it's kind of a a, a like amount of people like how many of those people does it take to like make a single piece of like quote-unquote content right like is it's still mostly a thing that people don't really understand unless you're in it right uh from the consumer angle like people just see big the bigger the number the better the game should be right because they're well, all doing the same I, thing in theory. But well, I also think that there's something there's something else happening here, which is like a theory of how the economy works, like underlying this, which sees consumers as like the thing that underpins the the product. Right. Mm-hmm. If labor stops existing, if like laborers and devs stop existing in the conversation, like actual developers as opposed to devs referring to studios, stop existing in the conversation, then like the thing that facilitates the existence of a given game is not the people who make it, but the consumer. And, and and so it becomes like, you know, you aren't listening to the people who make you work, uh, who, who, who let this exist. Uh, and those people are the consumers, not the like devs who are you know, actual developers who are across the board throughout the AAA industry trying to unionize and actually make companies listen to them. Um, people yeah. are trying to do that uh, and, and can't uh, because, you know, companies are getting in their way but like it it completely forgets that like labor power exists at all uh in the world period um and that's like one of my bigger frustrations with the video and what i think is like underpinning a lot of this Uh, one thing that i do want to know i think it's fair to make like a a, a mistake in something like this but i just want to note that like destin is the director of video content strategy at ign this is not someone who's like pushed on a deadline like fucking up this is someone who is like has institutional power and has like gained institutional power over checking this bio here 10 years at ign if you are telling me that someone has worked there for 10 years and is not and it is in a management position and does not understand the most basic elements of like good reporting that's fucking infuriating uh, well, I, re- I regret to inform you of someone that's been in this for uh, 20 plus years that um, <laughs> what you're describing is that would be infuriating is is humorous to hear. <laughs> uh, no, I know. I, I'm trying to be careful about what I say. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm just yeah, I'm just saying t- time spent at place does not necessarily equal, um, you know, figuring shit being, out. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I mean that's that is kind of the that's kind of the nature of the beast is like they're like like at any large company there are people who have a lot of tenure who haven't necessarily had the development track uh professionally that you might you might hope but I I think for like for for me when I look at a video like like this I just I think 
to to the point about like labor doesn't exist. I think it's a classically reactionary video in that standpoint of like I I'm not sure if it's a entirely uniquely American phenomenon. But we've talked about it before. Like this is a society that doesn't confer a lot of rights and dignity upon you as a matter of course, but customer is king. Like you are supposed to be as a consumer, that is where you are supposed to be coddled. You're the, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're the, you're the little prince for a day, uh, is, is that like, I, like I paid good money for this and I am unhappy. Uh, I demand, I demand the kitchen staff do something about it. The thing that the the thing that leaps out here, though, is that it, these are also such apples and oranges comparisons. And I think like to me, this is like one, like one of the other real failings of the video is just these are these are bad comparisons. It's like, I'm sorry you're upset about not getting destiny armors. You're talking about like if Larian can make Baldur's Gate three, why can't I have seasonal destiny armors right on time? <laughs> and then the questions answer themselves because he says, well, they, they find plenty of time to make cosmetic armors. And it's like, yes, that's why they're still destiny. It's like, the, like there's, there's little leaps that are, that are barely required, uh, which is that, you know, why are they, why are they not providing the, the seasonal event armors? If they're putting all this time into premium cosmetics that they are selling, do we really have to think that hard about it? Like, is that like, this is kind of because it's, it's kind of like, this is the business model. This is what supports these kinds of games that you like. And I'm, I'm sorry. It feels shitty in a lot of places. Maybe those games aren't for you anymore because they are not, they are not designed. And I think maybe that's the, that's the other last point I'll have on this. In some ways it's really, dated perspective of what the relationship between like the consumer and the game should be. And I have some sympathy to it. Cause like, I also like, I also liked the notion of like, I buy the game. I get the game. The game is complete here. I am enjoying my, my finished game and I own it. And increasingly like, you know, driven by publishers, but also just driven by the revenue structures needed to support like games like this that experience has sort of gone by the boards and increasingly you kind of buy a ticket into the theme park where all the individual rides and uh, you know, prizes also have microtransaction feeds uh, fees associated with them. And games are shipping more broken. Like that yeah. is, that, that is, that, 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 you know, that is true. Like games are shipping in poorer States at launch and the, those games are not necessarily always getting, you know, you'll get, you know, like Jedi Survivor, like that game has gotten patches. That game is still in like a pretty sorry state performance wise. And who knows if it'll get to a state that people would have wanted at, at, at launch. And so like those things can be true and they are frustrating. I wish those games ran better. But to your point. Yeah, it's like it is just the the way things the way things have gone and this notion that. You're still that you're still surprised or you're still angry that you like you log into a game and increasingly it's giving you the hard sell on a bunch of stuff that you don't want. And meanwhile, the core experience you want is compromised in this or that way. I can understand how you look at a game like Baldur's Gate three and you're like, man, this is how it should fucking be. And everyone loves it. Everyone, the, everyone on the internet loves Baldur's Gate three. And you can sort of say like, see, this proves that like the old magic is best. This is how games should be. And you know what? There's, there is something to that, but then the next your next your, your next question, your next obligation has to be like, 
well, why is that? Why did this, not at this scale, certainly, but why did like this vibe, like why was it once the norm? And why is it inc- like, why is it increasingly not? Why is it increasingly like I'm buying a ticket to go to a, go to a mall? And that's kind of where the conversation has to begin. And the weird thing is, is the conversation that doesn't even get started in this video. And I think that's the, you know, the, the, the real, the real failing here is that it's, it's a lot of like misdirected and unconsidered anger. And what's strange is, you know, we just spent a decent portion of the show talking about it. Like that is what breaks through. You know, the, the, the argument that like the version of this video where it's like, and I fully processed these feelings and I've thought about it. And I, f- I have some theories about why this is no one gives a shit. <laughs> the video does like a few thousand views. Thanks Everyone a lot. go raid John Riccatello's LinkedIn page and tell him he sucks. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I don't know. It's um like the, the, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very odd video. Uh, and I can, I I see why it got the, got the reaction it did, but I think one of the things lurking behind it is it's a, it it goes off on the wrong track. It, it, it takes us, it, it has a point of departure and then it goes on the wrong track from there, but there is something there about there. There's something to where it begins from this perspective of like, Playing Baldur's Gate feels really, really good. And it feels like it, it, it feels like this is what gaming should be. And there's all these experiences that you turn around and you're like, and this feels like stuff I really wish gaming were not. And it is worth examining that gulf. And that's not to say, like, I think I think Zalavir made all the correct points about like there's a lot of context about like why Baldur's Gate 3 hits this level of execution on what you could argue is like old school RPG type stuff. It's, it's very high. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons that like it took a miracle and took a lot of resources to pull this off. The studio has been refining the stuff for, for years and years and years, but it is worth examining that, that gulf. Uh, and you know, the studio doing this has already like, uh, there's a, there's a video, I believe from Josh Sawyer talking about, uh, a, you know, overview of pillars of eternity, dead fire and like lessons learned, uh, from pillars of eternity to dead fire. Um, and one of the things that he mentions is that like during the game's development or in the time between pillars of eternity one and pillars of eternity two, um, Larian released, uh, division divinity, original sin two, uh, a game that was hundred percent fully voice acted. And then suddenly, uh, when he went into investor meeting, when, when, when he went into meetings, suddenly full voice acting was like borderline a requirement. Um, and like th- this already is happening to people like Zalavir, sorry, Zalavir is not like pointing out a, a thing that could happen. He's pointing out a thing that happens all the time constantly. And, and that's the other frustrating thing about this, about this video to me is that it's just like, do you think this has never happened before? And that's one of the other things that bothers me. It's just like the the lack of any perspective about how it works. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, like, do to your to that point in itself, doing the least thing now, creating the least content requires so much more expenditure than it used to. Yeah. Often for marginal gain, like. I feel guilty skipping through text when it's fully voice acting. I'm like, I want to hear the voice performance. A lot of these things are pure transaction. A lot of these are like, I, I need you to go here and find the thing. I was, uh, I was a traveler on the road and I was ambushed. 
could you find find my lost thing? Do I need to hear that voiced? Frequently not. Frequently I'm like, oh, you know, this is kind of boring. I'm sitting here and I'm like, this, I could have just skimmed this text and just run. This off. isn't a real cutscene. Like Final Fantasy 16 does this a lot, where a lot of the NPC to character uh, dialogue. Do, 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 do. I, I'm just skipping right through it. I'm read. Like I don't need to hear you say go, like find my chocobo. Like, I, but then it goes to like you know grown up cutscene, and it's like, oh, you can't skip these. Like this is like something you should be paying attention to, and the voice acting adds something to the dynamic of what's in front of you. So you're you're, you're spot on. Where there are many times where you, f- I feel bad, but it's like this is an additive. It's actually it's it's actually it's negative because it's making me feel bad that I'm skipping it. But they added, they did this an enormous amount of work that I find like extremely unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are a lot of there, not every, not everything needs to be voiced. Not everything needs to be like fully performed or even blocked in as a sort of in-game, <laughs> in-engine like pseudo cutscene, right? Like some of this stuff could just be, man, if that had just been a text pop-up, that would have been sweet. I could have kept it moving. Mm-hmm. But it is. These are all the things that. But these are also all the things that kind of signal value, right? These are all the yes. things that are kind of like there to say, "Oh, this is a premium experience. This is not one of those indie games. This is not one. Certainly not one of those 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 itch games. You can't ship a AAA game without voice acting, especially in RPG. Like it would be wall to wall voice point. acting effectively. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, well, I think we yeah. gave that nine-minute mm-hmm. video enough time. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would agree. Well, but wait, is Zelda a tech? That's not really an RPG. <laughs> but you talk to people there, and it's just fucking text. There ain't no voices. Yeah, and it for saves the, the voice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it saves the voice acting for when it's important, mm-hmm. and like then you like you you perk up when you hear a voice, right? right? It's like oh, sh- like shit, shit is shit's going down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Having said all that, the voice acting in Baldur's Gate Three is very good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because it has full cinematics. Like that's the that's the thing is that like these are fully like acted cinematics like half the goddamn time. But they also and, found and so many people who have a good goblin in them. <laughs> uh, it's just so much fucking work. I cannot fathom how long these scenes took to produce, yeah. especially because like the game has pretty good animations in terms of like mid conversation animations. Mm-hmm. It's doing better than just about like any other CRPG I've seen that has attempted this style has like not gotten anywhere close to the amount of like personality and delivery um, that I've seen in most cases in Baldur's Gate 3, a game which, may I add, has completely broken for me and like half of the people I know. Um, yeah. Like from a balance perspective or just like, no, no like I mean, the game chains. doesn't work. I mean, like, I mean, like Lazel has like an, uh, an icon over her head and doesn't actually have anything to say to me. Uh, and will not complete the quest that uh, I need to complete uh, to so go check out. Yeah, like we're we're talking full game breaking stuff. I mean, like I know that been like a lot of companion stuff. Like there was an early one where people were like they couldn't progress Will's personal storyline past like meeting him, and that was it. And yeah. there would be a little like talk to me, and you would talk to him and say nothing. And that was in the game day one. And we all they, have that friend. They patched <laughs> they patched it out like just like two days ago and then like or like yesterday there was a patch that they pushed that broke the game even further like on accident it was it was a horrible accident like it was a horrible like their compiler fucked up and got corrupted and they pushed that live like no fault of their own i'm just saying like they're still pushing patches at a speed at which like 
unfortunately broke the game yesterday and they pulled it back very quickly. It's like, it's not perfect. It was never perfect. And like, I think there's a lot of like people getting into this game early on where like it can be easier to have a time where, but like as you get further, you can see that act one had three years of early access and the rest of it didn't technically. Right. Cause act one was the only thing available for early access for those three years. Right. Yeah, I think that I like I think that that oh, those opening bits are are pretty well pretty well built out. Um which is why, you know, I'm treating myself right. I'm just not leaving those opening bits. <laughs> I'm like, "Ooh, didn't like how that conversation went. Better Oh shit, I forgot to save again." Okay, well, I'll reload this save from 10 minutes ago and reconsider just, all those you, decisions. You just got to lean into it. You just got to lean into the decision. Just roll with the roll with the fail critical fails you know i found like a cool i know that is the thing so it is funny like in the in the game that you and i are streaming like it's very yeah fuck it let's see what happens and i'm shocked how frequently like playing the same character just different like different uh party composition but like things are unfolding completely differently for me oh you're doing you're doing you're doing parallel uh, games like one that you're streaming because effectively it's like doing. a fork right like we create because yeah. i kept playing after kato and i did character creation uh okay. on like launch day and then we streamed and i was like well let's just pick up from where we did that initial stream so it's the same character it's the same basic build out now they're starting to diverge uh-huh. but the thing <laughs> that is really striking is even in those opening hours where like statistically they're basically the same things are huh. breaking so differently that this is the same character same background same class all this completely different story unfolded in the opening hours. And when you trans, when you, when you adapt that to like, well then what would happen if our completely different class with a completely different background, completely different, you're, you start to like get a little pinwheel eyed at like the sheer amount of like possibilities this game supports. The scope is mind boggling. It's, it is mind boggling to consider how many, and they've, they've talked about how the, the permutations were, um, you know, 000. almost broke, almost almost broke the game at a certain point because of a a certain item that is required. As consumers, to- <laughs> no less than we deserve. <laughs> uh, but Ren, you had something there. Um, I was just gonna add, like, this is like the benefit of like fail forward design, um, which I think that this game does pretty well, with one exception, uh, which is lock picks and chests, uh, which just do the least interesting thing that you can ever have in a failure mm. for a video game, which is just to completely stop your progress uh, and not to like or just roll again, roll again. Yeah, 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 roll again or just no. Yeah, do you have no. the lock picks to just like brute force this thing? Then yeah, that that is. Or do you have like, someone strong enough to bust it open? That's what I've learned. You just break those shits open. I think some chests are pretty hardy though, but. They are. They are. But it, it's yeah, like it is it, that area. That is an area where things like it kind of stands out how kind of uninteresting that part of the game is. But like, yeah. hey, the the, uh, you know, actually, and that's some a classic ways, D&D. Baller's thing. Gate 3, 3D platformer. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like I had my moment of I can throw crates around like the spirit trespasser lives, folks. <laughs> I'm in Baldur's Gate 3 stacking crates to create like little gantries to get up to hard to reach places because can Astarian just leap up to places? Yes, of course. But can Gale? No, Gale cannot. So we have Gale to build needs a little like staircase. everyone around this room, find anything we can pile up into sort of a ziggurat of shit. He can hop up to get to the hard to reach area. This sounds very much like my toddler, right? It's just like, how, how, no, you can't have the candy. And you look away for a couple of minutes, like, 
but I will have the candy. And you have like stacked a chair and two books so you can reach <laughs> up to the candy aisle. I I I may start having Carlock carry around crates uh so I can orchestrate um uh, a strategy that oh I didn't God. see on the internet, but I but well, I you can put them in funny. your ba- you can put them in your inventory. Yeah, you can put barrels oh, in your inventory. I'm, play- I'm playing sick. her as what I call a barrel magic barbarian, uh, which means <laughs> that uh, she just carries around a bunch of elemental barrels and then throws them at people's heads very hard. Donkey How fun. much? Um, I, um, so I played Original Sin. I've not played Baldur's Gate three because I'm scared of its length. And there's like nine other super long games coming out in the next couple of weeks, but um, it may be a bit absurd by letting some of the the, the kind of kinks get worked out in the, in like the next six months. Oh, there's Why? kinks being worked out, my friend. <laughs> yeah, man, people really want to fuck that problematic vampire. Like, right? Like, uh, everyone just, is a vampire. They, they want to fuck everyone. 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 It's beautiful. It's, it's, I know, it's but, whole I, cast. but the amount, I know, but the amount, I feel like every couple minutes of my time, I was like, I'm not supposed to do it. I'm not supposed to do it. I just want to be with that boy. I want to be with that boy. I just feel like I'm seeing yeah. that everywhere. Anyway, that's besides the point, which is, one of my original sin, and I'm sure this is true of the uh, of the sequel, these 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 two games that Larian did uh, before this, like putting grease on the ground, elemental stuff on the ground was the name of the game. It is like go into a room, knock over some barrels so you can fuck everything up before the turn has even started. And given D and D and its restrictions. How much of that stuff still lives here? Opposite, opposite. It is extremely facilitated. It is as facilitated as you can imagine. Um, well, because D and that's what D and D is for. Like that is that is legitimately like D and D. Even original sin, I feel like break our rules, break gum, break gum. And so I'm just I was wondering if the fact that there's an existing rule set that they would feel any sort of uh, like they would have to be a little more conservative in terms of like letting the players fuck with things, given that you're working with an existing franchise and rule set. Well, the no. the rule set of D and D is extremely simulationist. Yeah, there's it's, so it's many. A, it, it's yeah. I was just gonna say there's so many rules in D and D that are like, what would happen if you tried to hit something? What would happen if you tried to throw something? Right? They make rules mm-hmm. for just like things that you could do in the world in that way. That like you add, you make, you know make make it make it into a video game and it's like oh this is just like your physics engine or whatever right like this is just like your like elemental interactions like that you've decided to include in the game like all that just kind of exists because the rule set is really just like what would happen if a player attempted xyz and here's how you figure that out right which is why it's like very crunchy as a system because it's like all the system is doing is figuring out like yeah it's basically running the physics model at a tabletop or whatever right it's like you swing the sword this is how strong you are this is how much damage you're gonna end up doing right it's all the numbers all the numbers that are hidden from regular kind of like rpg combat in in the end it's also worth noting that like this is this is why dnd um you know why Baldur's Gate like progresses on Divinity Original Sin 2 is because like Divinity Original Sin 2 had like some physics stuff but there is like a level of complexity in in Baldur's Gate 3 that can only come from like a long lineage of iterative design uh the only reason Baldur's Gate 3 plays the way it does is because 5e is the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons uh and there has been literal decades of like game design happening before we even start with this game, you know, something and that's like true Hulk. of this here, right? Like you don't get here without Larian making not decades, but decade plus of like Baldur's Gate 3 is different than Original Sin 1 and 2, but 
not real, right? I mean, like it, it's it's taking all of their it's taking their design language and lessons and then putting it in this new box. But like that, it's not fundamentally different. And you only arrive at a game that polished when if you think it's Baldur Ga- Baldur's Gate three. But if you consider Divinity's original sin one and two to be Baldur's Gate one and two from a design <laughs> perspective, it's like, wow, why is this so polished? Because it technically is like their third attempt at like a very similar style of game. Well, uh, one thing I'll say is that Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 were extremely effective simulations of advanced Dungeons and Dragons. They are they are extremely effective. They, like they they will get advanced Dungeons and Dragons down to the f- down to a fucking T. It's doing the exact same thing design-wise that the original games were doing in terms of like porting a vision of what playing D&D is to uh to a CRPG. And so, of course, the more like open-ended and uh, slightly less simulationist version of Dungeons and Dragons is a little bit more expressive in terms of how you play it. Um, but I but I do think something that... The thing I just don't... And again, like I haven't played the more recent editions as much, but like a thing I don't associate with a ton of D&D sessions necessarily... There's, there's room for player creativity, but it's rare that the DM is like... And so in this room, hey, remember you guys have all those flasks, but in this room, there's uh, a barrel of oil. Uh, there's a bunch of grease jars. Uh, there's that chandelier, which is burning. Uh, there's torches on the wall. Um, and then there's a vat of acid. Um, anyway, what do you guys want to do? And like this game is like, you just, hey, what if you just start knocking shit over and seeing what happens? Well, well like, the thing is that like this this game is like a, a masterpiece in encounter design. I am I am in awe of Baldur's Gate 3 in terms of its actual encounter design because, you know, the the, the base game design is like pretty good. Uh but the actual it's D&D. Uh but the encounter design, the way those tools are utilized is fucking brilliant. I am I am in genuine awe of a lot of this game's encounter design. Um, I think it is legitimately what is like made the game playable for, for most people, because I think if you didn't have it, this game would fall to pieces like immediately. Like, um, and- I was, so this is a total uh, apples and oranges comparison, but like one of the things I was just thinking about this question of scope of like, uh, you know, I mean, do I enjoy this game that much more than for instance, a game like vampire, right? Which is like very linear, very like pointed, like here's the story we're telling and like, eh, not like not necessarily like I love a game like that. That really is like telling a story and knows what it's about. And then it occurred to me, I was like, yeah, but remember all that combat in vampire and it wasn't the worst, but also it wasn't the best. And there was a <laughs> no. lot of it. There was a lot. of And it. I was kind of struck by how often in this game, I'm like, oh, goody. This fights started from an interesting position like that. That hasn't gone totally according to plan. And now we're in the ta- now we're in the tactics game. And there's a lot of games where it's like I'm here mostly for the story and the and I felt this way about other D&D games. I think I've sort of felt this way about OG Baldur's Gate in some ways. Like I just didn't find the tactics stuff that interesting. Like once it was like in time to start fighting. It was, I mean, it's a clunkier system coming back to it in the year like 2021 or whatever, but it just wasn't as engaging. And here I'm surprised by how much like, do I enjoy the goofing around and talking to party members and shooting the shit with people I meet in the world? Yes. And then the combat holds up its end as being like about as interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, to your earlier point, uh, asking about like that that scenario where the dm says like and here's all the things in the room that you could that could possibly interact it ends up actually playing out a lot more like well if a room exists and there's light in it there's probably fire uh grease is a spell 
And it's just a spell that wizards can have, and oftentimes you wanna you wanna hit a lot of people with some fire. The easiest way is to toss out grease and throw a torch, and like all of those. That's in the rule set, right? Like it, it, it wants to allow for the like, and like the that's the thing that like happens a lot at the table. It's like the DM might not have that idea to like set these things up that way, but a player might look around and be like, "Can I do this?" Like, do these things exist, right? And the DM will react and be like, ah, you know what? I didn't think about that, but yeah, sure, right? Like, you see a barrel in the corner or whatever. And this is just like, Larian is doing that really well ahead of time, right? They have, well, they're, they're it's thinking because, of because the, their design, their, their design already had that, right? right like, right. the way original Sin 1 and 2 works, it was like, oh shit, that just by happenstance seems to line up with what exactly you're talking yeah. about, which is like the player. Of of D and D asking a question and like like original sin one and two had a lot of like as Rob was pointing out like gee it's this very convenient you could knock over this barrel of water and then huh wonder what a lightning spell would do to those fucking yeah yeah. you know goblins in the corner Ren looks like you had something oh uh, one of the last things I was going to say is that like I think the other aspect here that's like really relevant to to this is like difficulty. Uh, and the ways in which, like, I'm playing on Tactician, uh, so I have to make a lot out of everything um, and, like, all of my rests, uh, which means, like, playing with these systems more and, like, having, being forced to find more creative solutions, because if I try and approach it like a tactics game, I'm going to get fucked. Quick question. Uh, for mm-hmm. on Tactician level, how is the difficulty being expressed? Uh, because, like, I, I assume, because your character classes, like, you don't get, like, your spells, like, these are D&D core rules. Like, you get X number of spell slots, etc. cetera. Uh, so where is Tactician coming in with, like, the, the higher difficulty? What what vector is is that I'm, coming, in, coming in by? I'm, I'm, I'm pulling that up right now. Um, um, are you just pushing everyone off cliffs instead? Because that's also what I see a lot of people talking oh, hey, about. <laughs> sorry, Ren, before you get, like, yeah. is anyone figure out how to use a fucking rope to rep- rappel down anything? Because this you is need, the one thing where I'm need, like, you need pythons, you need something, you need fucking full. You need. No, you, what are you gonna do with the rope in the world? <laughs> <laughs> sturdy branches. Hey, uh, DM, uh, how sturdy is that branch? I don't know. Roll for it. See what yeah, it is. No, look, but that would happen, right? That would. They would be like, is there a tree nearby? And if the uh, if, lazy Larian, <laughs> they just can't simulate the branches. I haven't, I haven't found a rope yet. I, I remember being like, oh, I'll just toss down. I don't know. I haven't. I'm. I maybe I haven't been looking I have like hard a enough. Ropes. I just have. But I'm a like, million. surely there's something I can do with these. Yeah. Yeah. There probably is. I. I wonder. I was. I was thinking when you got locked into the prison and we we're jumping down. I couldn't really see. What, oh yeah. What the, some kids put me in jail. Yeah. Uh, just FYI. Um, <laughs> Rob got sent to jail for harassing some kids. Mean. No, I wasn't harassing. They're just mean kids. That's what they They're said. They're just mean. That's what they said. I don't tweens. know. <laughs> Um, and I was, one of my thoughts was I can, maybe I can like send you a rope. And then you ended up, there was like a climbable wall that I didn't notice and it didn't matter, but jump is doing a lot of traversal things in this game. Jump, Uh, jump, you can jump like a lot because again, the rules of D and D are like your heroes, your strength modifier plus whatever feet. And you're like that really that much. (laughs) Did you not see me just grab all these barrels and jam them in my backpack? (laughs) backpack? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ren, so difficulty. <laughs> yes, so there's, uh, I'm looking at the, uh, a list, there's like a couple of differences. One is enemy, enemy HP, um, enemy HP just gets upped. Um, basically the scaling is 30% from explorer to balanced, and then another 30% uh, up to tactician. Um, on that, uh, the other thing is that apparently like the 
the actual AI gets better if you play on Tactician and that like it will focus down low AC characters if you don't stop it from doing oh, so. Oh, so like it's playing to win better right. basically yeah, as opposed to like, yeah, okay, that's that, that trash because there have been a couple encounters where I'm like, why did that archer not shoot? the mage who was like exposed and down in HP. Like <laughs> why didn't, why didn't you go for the kill shot? Right. Yeah. So on tactician, Rob, he goes they for, the, go kill for the kill shot all the time, all the time. <laughs> That's clever they though. Go for the fucking kill shot and it's not good. Ooh, I have a lot of dead people. I have to use revive spells a lot. I mean, that's I mean, like, lot. like dead, dead, like, yeah. Kato, sa- like, saving like, throws dead. 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 And that's, that's well, that brutal shit of like, because there's a system in D&D. When you go to zero hit points, you don't die immediately. You go into an unconscious state, and you have to start rolling dice to see whether or not you die. Right? Death saving throws. <laughs> yeah, every time very it, much like real life. Every time yeah. it's your yeah. Every time it's your turn, you roll a d20. If you get about above a, I think it's a, I think it's ten, uh. ten and above, you're good. Ten and below or below ten bad you roll three bad ones you're dead three good ones you that's a great stay alive. system that's great. but that's fantastic. if somebody smack if somebody hits you when you're on the ground in this state uh that's two that's two death saving throw so you only if you only have to roll bad once for you to immediately die it's a asshole thing to do as a dm to walk over to a downed enemy and whack them, but it sounds like this is the thing that they start doing when you uh, specifically go to the tactician, right? Like, uh, yes, but it's a little bit gentler. Yeah. Uh, okay. They so there are a couple of rules modifications from D and D fifth edition to um, Baldur's Gate three. There's a couple of spells that have been changed. One of which is uh, Mirror Image, which is like one of the most like classic spells in all of D and D. Mirror Image works completely differently in Baldur's Gate three because it would just be a complete fucking mess to play with the normal rules. Um, but one of the things that I believe they changed is, is the way that like death throws work, um, such that like, Kata, you can get hit a couple times on the ground. Basically there's like, you have to fail your death throw three times in order to like get a full death uh, in Baldur's Gate 3. Or someone has to hit you three times because each time they hit you, it picks up one. one Okay. Yeah. It counts it as a fail. It basically counts it as a failed save. Yeah. I think Um, in, I think in... Maybe I'm misremembering, but I think it's two for a single hit. Uh, it might depend mm-hmm. on how much HP is being taken away from your lifeless core uh, body. Well, but yeah, it, it's a D&D similar also has system. Yeah. D&D also has the half HP rule, where if you go right. to negative <laughs> half of your maximum health, you're just done. Just done. <laughs> That's It's over for you. And I believe that this game does not have that because I have seen characters on the ground take a 60 damage hit and still be alive. Yeah. Uh, and that character had 50 total health, uh, if I'm remembering correct. Um, um, like, it is... I am I'm I'm t- like I'm this might end up being a game I play through again especially because the multiplayer thing is such a different experience uh mm-hmm. like my my solo playthrough is a blast it's just a, it's it's a it's a ton of fun and I think it is it is best appreciated as like games like this do not come around every day every year very often it's an experience worth wor- worth appreciating uh but I think anytime we we do get in that that anytime you have the language of like the bar has been raised. This is the new standard. Eh, a creative meeting like this, we're not, you know, they ain't making cars. And, uh, you know, it's not right. like you can just be like, make another one of those. It's, there's a, there's a lot to this, but, but my God, like, at, like every session, I'm sort of reminded 
uh, how impressive across a variety of different axes uh, this this game is. Yeah. Uh, so we'll take a quick break here. I'm sure we'll have more to say about Baldur's Gate. One, but yeah. I just want to close the loop on your question, Ren. If you want to get up, you can yep. you could leave. I'm just I'm going to answer Rob's. Uh, I I googled. I wanted to solve your rope question, and I have an answer for you. Um, from the Reddit thread, is there a use for rope? I'm not going to read this this comment at the end from uh, Etheros. After an epic battle. I had my characters escape by jumping over a gorge. Unfortunately, Shadowheart couldn't jump that high. I tried throwing her a rope, but ended up clean knocking her out. (laughs) After helping her back up, I decided just to take out the entire camp and walk her around over the bridge. A usable rope would have saved me a lot of time. You're just supposed to sell them. Really? Oh my god! You're supposed to sell. That is so weird. Because like, so it's just bad. Because in D and D, like, this is like part of the rogues' kit is ropes and, and you need to sh- in, in, in original sin and I think in Baldur's Gate three, you need to have a shovel to like dig up. Chest. Still, yep. Like someone has to physically it be in. It just has to be in someone's inventory. So I'm with you. It's a little. It's a weird. It's a, weird a little thing, surprising because like, there's and a, it's a game with elevation, right? right. Like, oh, like, huge like tons. height is a huge part of of this game. Tons. So yeah, that's that's a bit odd. That's a bit disappointing because like just the sheer number of times I'm like, I have three because we it causes the problem of like if you have three characters who are like really maneuverable and can get to tough to reach places. The rope is valuable because, like, theoretically, that is how those characters could help winch, uh, like, a tank character up there. Like, we know they can't scale the vines. We know they can't hop up the broken boulders, etc. But, like, the way you can keep that party together is, like, once the advanced scouts, you know, sort of deploy some some belay lines, <laughs> uh, someone can sort of make their way up there uh, using, using mm-hmm. assist. And that just doesn't appear to exist in the game. And, yeah, it's very bizarre. Every time you're like, I'll throw this rope to someone and it just brains them. <laughs> And I'm like, am I missing what the, the thing to make it like, how about That's you uncoil the rope? Don't just yeah. like, like, it's very funny. You're like, throw them a rope and you see the bundle of rope the whole, just go yeah, like screaming across the, the screen and do does bludgeon damage. Oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. That's wild. Cause yeah, no, I mean, rope in D and D is very, it can be very useful. People, players get to up to a lot of shenanigans with rope. And maybe it's just like, at this point, the, the scope of, like the scope of it is already so big, they couldn't they couldn't figure out the rope. One hundred forty thousand variations of ending the rope. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just a little too far. Yeah. Look, not every developer is perfect. As a consumer, I deserve time. better. Quite, quite <laughs> frankly, uh, oh. but let's all contemplate our identities as a, as consumers as we as we take a break here because I think some some ads might play. Who knows? Who knows what'll happen? Uh, but but we'll we'll see as we as we go to break. Back after this. One of the most normal morning routines is a bowl, some milk, some cereal. What changes as you get older is you might want to modify what you're putting into that bowl with the milk. If you suddenly want to cut back on sugar or you want to add more protein, you're thinking about fitness goals, but you don't want to give up the deliciousness of what you're putting in that bowl, you might want to think about Magic Spoon. Uh, Because with Magic Spoon, you get all those flavors you love, high protein, less sugar, 
And as someone with kids, the idea that I can show them that these cereals can have all of these things and you can think about what's in your body every morning seems really good. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack of four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs, only 140 calories a serving, it's high protein, has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And look, you put peanut butter in anything, I'm there, which is why that's my favorite one and I'm hiding it from my children. You can go to magicspoon.com slash remap to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code REMAP at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash remap and use the code REMAP to save $5 off. Thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Hey, Remap Radio listeners, Rob here. You know, the time was I'd come up with a meal plan for the entire week, and then I'd trawl through the grocery stores making sure I had everything I needed right on budget to make those home-cooked meals. Unfortunately, times have changed, and speaking of time, I don't have quite as much of it as I used to. You know, there's a podcast empire to be overseen. But I can't just order fast food and pizza delivery every night. My budget, and unfortunately, my increasingly delicate stomach won't allow it. Fortunately, for folks in the same boat as me, there's Factor. Factor gives you 35 options each week to make meal planning easy. And not just for dinner. They have breakfast foods and snacks covered as well. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. But it's just as convenient delivering the food you need right to your door. And now, if you head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off, that's right, that's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And now you can head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off. That's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. What do you want to kick off on here uh, after break that you've been up to? Oh, just let Ren and I go sicko mode on on Blasphemous too. Let's 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 get Blasphemous. All right. You know, honestly, I can't come up with a better throw throw into let Ren and I go sicko mode on Blasphemous too. Kind <laughs> uh, of fix that in post. Yeah, honestly, that's, yeah. that's flawless. That's We're back. One. We're gonna go sicko mode on Blasphemous too. It's gonna get Blasphemous up in here. Oh, I'll say anything about the Pope. <laughs> You know what? There should be more Gospels. And I know there were. (laughs) (laughs) Blasphemous 2. Blasphemous is a game that I did not play when it came out. I uh, sort of stumbled upon it later. um, I think because there was a trailer and I was just really struck by the art. Um, But it's absolutely one of my favorite action games of like the last five years. It has a little bit of souls in it, but it's got way more Castlevania uh, and Metroid in it. Um, uh, but it's, it's one of those games that with a, uh, kind of heavy emphasis on combat. Um, it's 
just some of the most striking art you will ever mm-hmm. see in a video game. Like if you are uh, like, ah, how can 2D art impress me anymore? Well, then just just watch a trailer for Blasphemous. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Ren, go ahead. I mean, if you're if I think that Vatican three should look like this. <laughs> you know, I think people were people were not thrilled about Vatican II uh, for a lot of reasons. But I think like there weren't enough aesthetic upgrades with the Second mm-hmm, Vatican mm-hmm, Council. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I honestly think that they needed to like really lean into like vibes a little bit more. All the other stuff was great. Um, but, I miss you know, when I the mask was just... in painted pixels. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's funny because there is a lot of religious, you know, iconography here in, in Blasphemous. Blasphemous 2 comes out next week. Uh, Ren and I have had a, a chance to play uh, a number of hours of of the sequel. Ren, I, I love all the prop pronouns in this game. I don't really follow the plot. I know I'm the, I know I'm the penitent one, and I, I know there's a miracle, but I imagine you would be better than no. me to explain. No. No. You're not any better explaining well, what's going on? For, for a reason. For a reason. Okay. When I started this game on a little device called the Steam Deck, uh, yes. it was not yet Steam Deck approved. Uh, and I think I started this game a few days before Patrick. Uh, yeah. And the initial build that I played, um, this happens with some Steam Deck games, uh, cinematics. If a, if a cinematic is considered like a separate file in the game's like file architecture, and it like goes to find this other file, it cannot find it or cannot play it properly. Um, whether it be because of file type or like a variety of other issues. Uh, and so I would get the audio for the cutscenes, uh, mm. but oh, no. none of the visuals, uh, the visuals, I just got a like no signal TV static. Um, oh, that's incredible. That would be even worse for the way I'm playing the game because I'm, I'm playing it in Spanish, um, <laughs> uh, which you can't, I, I highly recommend uh, switching the game to that. Um, the, the game is made in Spain. In fact, like one of my favorite articles I've written in the last, I don't know, five years was about, uh, this game being made in Spain, but they released it in English, not just for budget regions, but because the best way to get your game out there is to release it in the English language. And they got to eventually in their deal, their DLC add Spanish VO, which got to be more accurate to their script. And, and yeah. it's delightful that they, it's, it's front and center in the sequel. Um, and you can, I highly recommend it fits the flavor of the game exceptionally well. Well, then I will just, I will just read this description from, Please. from the developers so I can better explain this world a little bit. Um, a foul curse. This is the original. A foul curse has fallen upon the land of Sistodia and all its inhabitants. It is simply known as the miracle. Play as the penitent one, a sole survivor of the massacre of the silent sorrow. Trapped in an endless cycle of death and rebirth, it's down to you to free the world from this terrible fate. And reach the origin of your anguish. Yes. This is yes. scrumptious. And I'm gonna, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, and the game. A terrible curse known as the miracle? Tell me yes. more. Yeah. Oh. And then Blas- Blasphemous 2, uh, the penitent one, awakens as Blasphemous 2 joins him once again in an endless struggle against the miracle. Dive into a perilous new world filled with mysteries and secrets to discover. And tear your way through monsters' foes to stand between you and your quest to end the cycle once and for all. It's, it's not nonsense, but it does frequently come across kind of. And gibberish is wrong. It's it's very serious, and it's it's. I don't know how to. I don't, like. I'm definitely not trying to be pejorative. It's like I don't really care about the story, but every time there's a line of dialogue, I am raptured. Like I, I like all I want to do is hear it because it's so exquisitely written, and 
The voice acting is tremendous. Like it's just great. I love being in this world. I love hearing about the miracle and how bad it is and how much it's making everyone's lives completely miserable. <laughs> um, but as for like what's actually happening, I don't know. I'm fighting these monsters and they're beautiful and they're terrifying. And, and yet their faith remains. Like that's mm-hmm, that's the other mm-hmm, thing that's mm-hmm. like that you that you have to make really clear about the miracle is like the miracle is not just a thing that makes the world suck. Uh, it's it's what if the thing that made the world suck was also explicitly the core of the dominant religion of the world, uh, and also everyone knew that it made the world suck. So there's a bunch of people who are like, yeah, it's a problem. This sucks. it's a problem, but I also our faith. But I love <laughs> I I love Christ Lord the sequel to Jesus. I'm 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 loving this place. Um and and it just ha- the ecclesiastical vibes in this writing is are so fun. They're so fun. Um I I am also raptured in every line of dialogue. Um even if I missed the game's uh intro. But god, it's good. <laughs> not sure god, how much of a difference fun. it would it would it would make. But yes, I am I cannot be more pleased to report, Ren, I I think you're in the same boat as me, that um, I think Blasphemous is a classic. It is like a really overlooked uh, sort of modern classic in the, like, why does Konami make a new Castlevania? Fucking who cares? Just come play Blasphemous. Like, this is a, like, modern, hardcore 2D action game fused in with Little Souls and and some Metroid, and... Like, you could just, sure, I don't know, put Simon Belmont in here and he can go fight the fucking Miracle, like, instead of Dracula. You can put Dracula at the end of this, Ren. I believe you. Sure. Why not? Put Dracula. Like, like, I'm fighting all sorts of creatures that are just, you know, uh, uh, Transylvania adjacent. And the sequel is just so great. It builds on all the good things of the original game. It makes so many smart choices to add depth and nuance to the combat to the platforming, to the exploration. The art is somehow even better and like more upsetting and more interesting. I mean, it is just everything I possibly could have wanted from a sequel to this game. And the parry is the parry is <laughs> plural because there are several. So I have to. So, yes, this is a so question. Yes. So the parry was not in the original, right? No. Well, and so yes. there is a parry. Yes. Yes, I believe there I was. A, remember. There was a parry in the original, but I believe it was a lot more situational. Um, there has always been a block button. Um, blast. There's a block here. It has a parry, and so like, f- like you know, uh, forgive us if we're remembering some of the the mechanics of the original, but like it, it is nonetheless true to say than the sequel. It is much more centered. It is yeah. much more mechanically dense. And one of the it's not a criticism. I'm still on what I would call like the skills of the game are like divided up into like set ones or yep. level one, level two, level three. And I assume as I progress further, I will, I played about like four and a half hours. I'm like, I'm almost at the the second boss um, that I'll get access to additional uh, depth. But like right now, the parry, which is only accessible on this, like these two fast swords. Um, you, have, you have, you have three uh, base weapons. Okay, I was going to ask if you had to. found the three weapons in four and a half Well, I hours. found two. I start. I started with the fast swords because I do like an agile character, yet I found myself... Can I just guess? You started with, like, the swingy big no. ball, right? No? no? No, I started with the fast oh. swords because they're parry-based. Okay. Mm, okay. Um, okay. They're quick so and parry-based so, and reward complete aggression. They do, um, especially with the lightning upgrade. Um, but, so the parry as it stands and in, in, as I play the game... It's cool to do, but I'm not really rewarded for it. Like, I interrupt an attack, but I could just as easily dodge. Does the parry get more mechanically 
or not mechanically rewarded, but is there more of a a reward for the player for having timed a parry other than just it feels good as shit, which it does, but I don't know that it's any better than me just dodging at the moment. One, it does a shit ton of damage. It does so much more damage Mm. than a regular attack. And two, for all of the weapons that have a parry, uh, the two swords in the game, the parry doesn't just like give you this one attack it is also a resource gain for both of those weapons like primary resource uh so the sword you can turn into like a cool blood sword uh with like ritual magic uh and to do that you have to have like hit a bunch of enemies and you have to have like charged it up and then you make the decision to activate that mode Uh, And once you activate that mode, you lose access to your parry and you lose access to all blocking uh, and you only have the weapon as like this altered second form that is more whip like than sword like. That's the one I don't have yet. I'm, I'm, sh- I think that's locked away in a in an area that I can't quite get to. Yet. Yeah, because I, I have I have the other two. I have like the the mace or like the wait. I don't know what you would like. You have the mace and the rapiers, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so you don't have the short sword yet. Okay, got it. Um, so yeah, that short sword has a totally different like parry functionality. Um, mm. and also like every time you block a regular attack with that short sword, you then do a like counter attack that is much like uh, a guard counter from Elden Ring. Uh, Patrick, if you remember those, um, mm-hmm. see this, that's what I, that like that sort of stuff I don't have access to in the one parry I do have. And like that stuff sounds amazing so yeah it has a guard counter on that other weapon uh and it's it's very it's very satisfying because like it there are situations where it is better to do a standard block and have the enemy knock you away from them than it is to do a parry because if you do Mm. a parry you are locked into an animation where you are parrying uh Mm -hmm. and so if you're getting hit with like a string of attacks like very close range it may be better um to just block normally and let the first hit send you flying backwards because when you block something in this game it has like a lot of momentum you get pushed back really far uh that is also a way of keeping you out of danger Uh, and so like multi-hit combos can sometimes be avoided by just being like okay i'm gonna block this first attack instead of parrying it and then this fucker is just gonna be like swinging at the air for five minutes while i like prepare my actual attack um the combat system is really dense and yeah, it's the the combat system was already it wasn't simple in the original, but it was it was pretty straightforward, but very effective. And what they've done here is just added a lot more build customization, like a lot more uh, weapons. And then just like what you're what you're doing moment to moment is just has you have a lot more options. I mean, you can kind of stick to if you want, like attack, dodge, cast some magic like you can you can make your way through the game. But the uh, the fact that. uh you, there, there is a lot more afforded to you. Just like moment to moment, you'll get through a combat sequence and then forget to like remember like, oh shit, there are like seven other things that I could have done there uh, that I kind of forgot. And then I'll have to go through like the skill tree again, remind myself like, that's right. Like I can attack with this and then, and then hit right bumper and that like puts a flame, uh, you know, on and, like, and it's just every time I get access to something new, I'm impressed by how thoughtful it is and how elegant it is and how much depth it provides to the moment-to-moment gameplay it's a character action game in that way like it it, it, it really it grows it really in the is. way that character action games do where it's like you know the minute you get the red hot kick in any platinum game whatever whatever version of their like dive kick whatever they're calling it in that particular game um uh you that is a tool that is forever then in your toolkit unless you turn it off which this game also lets you do it lets you do like the devil may cry thing of being like actually 
my combo structure is better if I disable this like really powerful attack because I can mm -hmm. like keep up this combo structure way better. It also has the character action game thing of letting you switch weapons on the fly, um, yeah. which is so important. So Patrick, you haven't gotten to this. Um, once you get all three weapons, the game expects you to use all three weapons for environmental puzzles. Uh, yeah, and, like, so I, I have two of them. One, them. Like, yeah, like I have, um, for example, like there are these big bells and you can hit it with, you know, this, this like big mace that's kind of a hammer equivalent. Mm -hmm. And that will, that's the only thing that'll get the bell, uh, uh, make a noise, which then makes these platforms come in. And then there are these mirrors that you can only interact with, with, um, the two, uh, the two, the, with the rapiers and like that, like shoots you around in different directions. And so you have these really cool platforming sequences as well that are unique in this game because they are like so weapon centric as which is just not usually how puzzles in these types of games are presented and, and also like really engaging um you know one of the weapons has a, a ground pound uh and basically what one of the puzzles in the game where one of the platforming challenges of the game had me do was hit one of those bells that patrick mentioned and then as the bell is creating platforms, then switch to the rapier to like dash across this like gap in time with the wave from the bell opening up a new platform mm -hmm. for you to land on. And then it wants you to do that again. And then finally, once you get to the end of this platforming challenge, you're like so high in the air above this door that you couldn't, that you like need to use the ground pound to get through. And so it's like, oh, now I have to switch to the blood sword to do the big ground pound so I can get through. And so like every weapon is being incorporated into these in like unique and interesting ways. Um, for like every platforming challenge I've seen. Again, this is like a very well-designed video game. I'm very impressed by it. It is. It is. And um, I mean, like, you know, I Rob, just like give you a sense of like the vibe we are talking about here. Like this is like this is like constantly what we're talking about. It's just like Yeah, no, I've been lingering lingering over that screenshot in particular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I like the animations in this game are on one hand, like almost like they're bragging, like this looks sick. Shit. There's but it's always animations. They're really, so they have, um, but there occasionally you can trigger what is called an execution. Um, and basically like you attack an enemy and you cause enough stun damage. Um, but if it, it feels more random, you can influence it with items and make it more, make it more often. Mm -hmm. But, uh, if you, Parry if you commit an execution, damage. Parries do more stagger damage. That's true. Um, that's, <laughs> yeah, that is probably true. Um, and if you, it basically causes them to get stunned. And you want to do this because you can get more uh, experience points and also it's like the drops of martyrdom, which are basically like level up tokens that you can use to um, invest in your skill points. But then it produces these like really essentially fatalities, like the equivalent of a Mortal Kombat fatality. And every or most enemies have them like one hit enemies that are flying enemies are not going to have this but most base level enemies of you can trigger one of these and it's just this opportunity for the the, the like the art team on this game to go we're just going to show you the coolest shit it's not it, we couldn't do this anywhere else because it would in, un, uh, like interrupt the rhythm of the combat which is so critical to the flow of the game but like we're so good at art like like let's just do it and like these fatalities these executions allow them to do these flourishes that just feels so complimentary to the otherwise like really impressive sprawling 
art. Like, I mean, every single screen is playing with lighting in some interesting way. Like there was a whole sequence where I was on a rooftop and instead of having the character uh, directly in the foreground, they're kind of in the shadow. Like they're kind of a silhouette as you go across this, this area. It's just, it's so beautiful and plays so well. And uh, I, I'm just, I hope I, I'm just, it's the kind of game where I'm excited. It's here in every moment I'm playing it. I'm excited. I'm playing it, but it's also a, a minute that means that like I've already played that part, which means I can't play for the first time again. But at least this game seems pretty big, and so I've got quite a bit, of, quite a bit ahead of me. I think it said I was twenty five percent through whatever that. I don't know if that's a map progress or story progress, but you know I've played a four and a half hours, and I'm through like a, a decent chunk of the of the game. I I may end up being having to be the person who does this, but uh, I'm so excited to see like a really interesting like read of this of of these two games in conversation with each other because I think there's something like really really fascinating here. Uh, in terms of like an exploration of faith, uh, that I just have, oh, do not it has have the a time lot to, to dig say. into, uh, yeah. currently, but I would, I, I'm so excited for this like work to be like really done, uh, for, for both of these games. Please, uh, give me the, I will watch, you know, I don't really watch lore videos. I would watch once this is out, give me the two and a half hour. I'm going to explain black, uh, blasphemous, uh, to you. And like, I'll be, I'll be there with popcorn, uh, ready, ready to watch. It's a, it's it's a tremendous accomplishment. Like I I like and if you haven't played Blasphemous, like just don't even jump into this one yet. Go play that game. It is so good. It runs it runs really well on Switch. Um, I think Ren and I are both playing this one, like primarily on a Steam Deck. It runs fantastic uh, there. Um, just that first one is great. This one seems even better. Um, and I, I just I like, cannot wait to see what the studio does does next uh, because they are just they have nailed this type of game, and I would just love to see them keep making it um i'm having another question bucket next but patrick you are you are rejoining us from vacation and there is one thing that you had here sketch like things that you were mm-hmm. maybe like good to talk about which was kid board slash card games made by parent with their kid yeah um this this was uh uh something i, I just published a feature about this over at crossplay where um uh, Elon Lee, who is a co-founder and designer over Exploding Kittens. Well, wow, that um, name is really uh, skunked now, isn't it? Like, I, I know, like, I know. I felt entirely like just phys- like involuntary physical response of like, oh, oh what, what? Poor, poor Elon. E L A N. But it doesn't matter in the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. And um, and anyway, so they they they've worked on a bunch of you know board games, card games, uh, you know, for a number of years. They worked at Microsoft. They worked on a bunch of ARGs, but um. I stumbled uh, uh, upon uh, their latest project and then wrote a whole piece about it, um, which is basically like uh, his daughter, Avalon, uh, wa- turned four. And around four is where like games, can, like kids can kind of understand basic rules. You can start introducing like some basic card games or board games. And they you can start like trying to teach them like winning and losing and, and how all that goes. But the problem is that like most kids, uh, cars, game, board games, they, they're fucking awful. Like they are just, they, in the same way that when you buy a, uh, like a, a cheap plastic toy, cause that's what your kid is into, like whatever franchise, the same amount of care is put into the games that are made for children. So just, just imagine like the, the loving touches put on that Paw Patrol piece of shit that you buy at Target. That's the same amount of like effort that is put in to games that are meant to be enjoyed by kids and adults, uh, often simultaneously. And like the, the easiest way to describe how that manifests is that it's a tricky design problem. Um, 
but kids have like there's a limited amount of rules they can comprehend, grasp, and have play out simultaneously. And so how most games solve that, it goes, <laughs> we just won't solve it. Like, we'll just make everything luck. Um, so Uno is like the greatest example of this, mm-hmm. right? Like, there is really no strategic layer to Uno. Go watch that tremendous on, Uno segment I don't segment know. I think we, we found did. the strategic layer in Uno. And that's make yeah. the game endless until someone flips the table. <laughs> just cracks. Just cracks. <laughs> right. So, so in Uno, you can, in theory, like be playing your cards right so that like you're you're trying to get down to having one card so you can say uno and move on and then yes is it delightful to watch like a a close friend and colleague uh sitting next to you flip over 12 cards in pursuit of the one card that can get them to move forward it is you're laughing it's funny you know what it's not funny to is like a five-year-old like where they're like i'm trying to play the game and then the game laughs at them and so many, so many kids games are centered on this notion of luck where when they play it a second time, the chaos element is the only reason to come back. It's not because, oh, I learned something. I'm going to play it better. And so uh, this designer worked with his daughter over like he brought some games home and they had the same experience with all of them. It was just like, I'm not having any fun. I don't want to play these games with my kid. Like, how do we solve this? And he's like, well, I'm a, I'm a designer. Like, maybe I could work on some games with his kid. And so they designed a series of, of four games uh, that I've played with my family for, like, the last couple of weeks. Like, there's uh, uh, the best, worst uh, ice cream. Uh, the, the, the way this one works is, like, you line up all these ice cream flavors. You know, it's like a, a earthworm and, like, green slime and stuff like that. And those are in the center. And... Uh, the, there's a car. There is a, a, a you know stack of cards uh, in the center as well, and you as the player uh, pick up one of those cards, and there are three options on there, and one of those options is is the, is what's on the other side. So you have a one in three chance of being correct. If you're correct, you get to keep that card, and you're put you're adding it to like a a board that you have that's like fill it up with ten scoops or whatever. I forget the exact number. If you get it wrong, it goes on the board. And so if it's, uh, you know, earthworm, you set next to the earthworm. And so then for the next person, um, as it goes around, people are getting it right. People are getting it wrong. And you're filling up all these scoops. And then it becomes a game of strategy where you may pick up the card and go, well, the one I want to pick is green slime because I think like I think it might be green slime. But there's six earthworms on the board. I should pick earthworm. Because and so what you end up doing is kids are doing basic statistical analysis without understanding it. But also it's the fun of like randomness does not have to feel cheap and frustrating. Like it can just be the the chaos element, but with a strategic layer where you're looking at what are the numbers on the board? How do I do risk management? And the kids are doing that without actually knowing that they're doing that. Mm -hmm. And it suddenly makes a for a really fun experience, both for the adults and the kids. Now, what do you do when the three-year-old that you're trying to play this with says, no, I just want the cute puppy. And then you have to engineer the entire game around making sure nobody claims the cute puppies so that the three-year-old can fill up their whole fucking board with the cute puppies. <laughs> There's three-year-olds. There's only so much a well-designed game can do. The other one I'll, I'll, I'll highlight um, is, uh, it's called My Parents Might Be Martians. The, the way this one works is a little bit like charades where the, uh, the adults. So let's say a mom and dad, um, uh, are split into two teams. And then let's say one kid is on the other side and 
the adults pick a card and like, let's say it says boat. Well, you can't, you can say words to describe it, but they have to be one syllable. And you would be shocked at how hard it is to describe something when you start thinking about the amount of words that have more than one syllable. And that's where the Martian part comes in. And what's the other, the other trick to this is that the kid earns a point every time they guess within like this little timer that you have, um, uh, if they guess the word right. Uh, and then you as the adult get a point if they guess it right. So you're both getting one for working as a team. Then it switches to the other adult. And if they, if that child gets one right, they get a point and the other adult gets a point. And what, uh, you know, an older person would realize is, oh, huh, this game is engineered for the kid to win every time. Because ultimately what the designer was going for was how do you model good like good loser, good mm-hmm. winner behavior. And it's like, well, you do that with a game where the adults always uh, lose, the kids always win. So the kids get to get to see their parents lose and like be good losers. And it's just, they've been so much fun to play and like, they're just really well designed for what they're going for. And um, they scale really well for different ages. I, I, you know, I, they really kind of, I think it's really more like four and up. I think my three old is just a little too, too young for a bunch of these, but she can grasp the concepts. She just can't quite grasp sticking to even rules that are bent <laughs> in, in, in her, in her favor. But it's just so rare to find games that, um, respect the fact that children are playing them because so much of children's entertainment movies, like games feel condescending. Like they're just there to fill time. They're not actually meant to be rewarding. And so like this is one of those rare instances where. It feels like someone would like like one small example is the rule. Oftentimes the rules are written in two different formats. It's one to explain to the adults. Here's the whole nuance of how the mechanics work. And they're not that complex, but like, you know, it's like six or seven things you're following. And then on the flip side, it says, read this to the kids, which gives them the narrative premise and the basic mechanics without like, here's what happens on each turn and like Mm -hmm. where a piece has to go. But it gives them like just that idea that. There's two layers of rules to explain. And uh, rather than having the parents have to figure out how to, because your inclination is going to be over explain something right. as you're trying to like, like explain that to your kids. Whereas like, Hey designers, we've thought about this. Here's the simplest version of this written in language. The kids are going to find interesting and attractive. So they're like 15 to $20 each. Like I got sent complimentary copies because I was writing about it, but like, I'm going to pick up like a second set to like bring, to my family's lake house because it's just like such a great way to pass the time. And all the games are like five, 10 minutes. Like they're, nice. they're over like that and, and you can rotate through them. And so, um, like they're just really good. They, they come highly recommended. That's, That's awesome. Uh, and like, it, it feels a real niche, right? Like the, the, like there's a lot of like kids change so fast like between yeah. like three and like nine years old, right? Like there are things you can do with like a, a nine or a 10 year old. There's games you can play, that would be like inconceivable for a six year old. And it's just like, there's completely different needs as a game, like as a, as a, as a gamer, right? Like there's just, there, there was one story that the designer told me where I asked that very question. I was like, Hey, so they started designing the games, prototyping them when his daughter was four, mm. they're shipping and his daughter is five. And I was like, you know, you, it's like, if you're around kids long, like four to five doesn't seem huge, but it's just, the gulf is enormous. Like, uh, between um, uh, that at that age, when they're that young, especially, I was like, well, how did that impact 
like the prototyping. And he went on to tell the story of like this kind of dice stack, like a it's kind of like a tower building game that involved dice. And they've been working on it when she was four. And then like right after she turned five, like one week, like a week into it, they sat down to play the game to kind of tweak the rules. And she's like, it's too easy. I don't like this game anymore. And <laughs> he was like, what are you talking about? Like for like six months, this game has been like one of the best ones. Does it doesn't work? There's no challenge to it, so they tossed it out like that. Like there was like twelve wow. games they went through, <laughs> and 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 a lot and the ones that stuck were the games that scaled with ages, where mm. it's like you start at a floor of like what, how can a kid, what's the youngest a kid can comprehend it, and then what I can it scale past that where the the kids as they're older can better appreciate the like strategic layers. So it's like the younger kids can still play, but maybe not uh fully appreciate the the like the different game dynamics as they're older you can better appreciate and take advantage of those in the way that you get a traditional skill arc with any sort of any sort of game design this is this is such a good like ex- like example of like one of my favorite like sayings about design or like things about design which is that like I think that, like, a lot of, like, designers, like, graphic designers, interior designers, etc., outside of, like, game design, like, say frequently is that, like, design is about solving, like, fundamentally, and even some game designers, like, design is fundamentally about solving problems, and I think that this is such a fun problem to solve. Uh, This is, like, a really clever, like, choice of problems, and then, like, a really interesting design process to get there through, like, multiple cycles of, like, playtesting with a child until you build a design that, like, future-proofs it. That's really clever and, like, really cool. Um, I'm, like, very impressed by this approach. Yeah, I thought, I thought like, the this quote that um, they gave me, I thought, like, really sums up exactly what you're talking about, Ren, which was, uh, uh, they said, uh, designing these games, uh, designing these games like, uh, the, 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 sorry, designing games like this has really crystallized the secret to making a really good kids game. Uh, it's a game that shines a spotlight on the kid. The kid can't notice the spotlight, but the parents, the grownups have to look at it and just feel so proud and so amazed. And like, that's a really, I think, interesting insight. into like, what is actually the mission of the game is not necessarily to make the kid feel like a winner, but to like feel seen uh, and understood. And like, that's a, that's a wholly unique challenge for, mm-hmm. for design. Yeah. It's, it's very cool. All right. And with that, let's let's dig into the question bucket. Uh, we got some some Aldi stuff came up and it feels familiar in a way that like I feel like we might have learned this uh, a couple years mm-hmm. ago as Waypoint, but I don't remember learning this. So it's new to me. So apologize if you apologies mm-hmm. if you've heard it before. Uh, but I was I was unaware of this. A couple people wrote us about this. Uh, Rim writes. Hey, Recartographers, listening to last week's podcast, I just wanted to check if you were all aware of this essential piece of Aldi lore. Aldi is, in fact, two companies, Aldi Nord and Aldi Sud, which, as their names suggest, operate in the north and south of Germany, respectively. According to Wikipedia, they split in the 1960s when the founding brothers had a disagreement over whether they should sell cigarettes. The interesting part is that internationally, both these companies operate as Aldi, and they have divided the globe between them. <laughs> Although they have pretty pretty similar logos, the quality varies considerably. In the UK, I love shopping at Aldi, which is Sud, but when I moved to the Netherlands, I did not find it up to my discerning budget supermarket standards because we're a Nord country. The twist is that both companies operate in the US. Aldi is actually Aldi Sud. 
while Aldi Nord operates as Trader Joe's. <laughs> what a fucking wow. reveal. No, Rob, this is, this is new to everybody. This is not just new to anyway, you. Anyway, this is Lidl is the superior German budget supermarket. Love your work, Rim. So Trader Joe's is the good is the good one, right? Is that what they were saying? No, no, it's the bad so one. Aldi Aldi Sud is the good one. Aldi, Aldi Nord Sud. isn't. Okay, okay. But okay. in the U.S., Aldi That's Nord is Trader Joe's, one. which feels like it might have carved out a distinct identity from, or maybe not. Maybe we're just maybe we're just little piggies, right? Well, I also maybe we're just little piggies I, enjoying our little Trader Joe's. <laughs> yeah, I also think that like Trader Joe's is like increasingly the butt of a lot of jokes, and you know what? I don't hear Aldi as the butt of many jokes because <laughs> they're because they're killing it over at Aldi Sud, which is what I went to in my time. Trader Joe's, I feel like, has like refined to a science. The this is not a grocery store. No, you know what I mean. Like you're, if you're in a if you're in a Trader Joe's, you're not here to make like grocery choices. You're here for treats and convenience food, but really those treats, right? It's mm-hmm. like that's kind of how Trader Joe's feels to me. Is like it's the experience of however you're feeling. It's as if you went to the store hungry. That's Trader Joe's whole vibe. Uh, <laughs> did you did you did you go somewhere to buy produce? It better not be a Trader Joe's. No, <laughs> don't 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 get produce at a Trader Joe's. <laughs> see, and that's the thing is that I do see a lot of people riding into my neighborhood on the train with Trader Joe's bags with produce in them. At which point I am fucking I am beyond flabbergasted given that if there was Is it just overpriced? No so it's not very good. And there's not much in it of it. Like there's it's a bad selection usually. And it's weird. Like this is the thing, this is the other thing is like Trader Joe's, at least this is like my been my experience, very big on shrink wrapping vegetables. Yeah. Like it's a very strange mm. thing, but like it is a you go to the produce section and it's not like ah here are the baskets of produce like grab your little baggie and and put what you want in there, it's like here are the plastic like like containers of apples that we've like triple shrink wrapped and here you go are the good apples I don't know you can't really look at them they're in the they're in the, they're under the shrink wrap, <laughs> uh, but it's also kind of a signal that you shouldn't be here for. For just like fresh produce, that's not what we're here for. There's hey, better places. I assume they. I assume they have it just because, like the same reason you have like candy yeah, you're there. You might as well. Like, you're here. You're there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, Rob. How could you not be appetized by the cuke cube? <laughs> what? I wait. I haven't seen this. The Cumber Prison. Uh, <laughs> No, just your description the of these of, the, of these vegetables, like a sh- very shrink wrap. I oh, yeah. I trust I trust the cucumber oh, not, this rectangle isn't a, uh, more. Okay. This no, this, this not, is not oh, no, this is not okay. a term that anyone has. That might before. be in Baldur's yeah. Gate three though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the object that actually made it so that the game nearly broke was the cucumber. The cucumber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh. uh, yeah, and and somebody else also wrote about this, just explaining that. Uh, because Aldi Aldi Sud was first to the U.S., that's kind of why we end up with Trader Joe's because, like, mm. they knew they couldn't they couldn't do Aldi and they have two different sorts of Aldi stores, so they they went a different direction. Uh, so that is that's some great that's some great lore. Uh, I, I I love to hear that, and it's it's very funny that it starts as a schism over whether we should sell cigarettes, which is yeah. just ultimately like. Kind of mooted by the direction a lot of of uh, a lot of groceries went. Uh, I don't know how many grocers you can still buy buy smokes at anymore. Like, but like in terms of supermarkets, 
I don't know. I feel like they 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 still sometimes have them at like the customer service. There's lots of things the customer service counter. That's very true. Right? Like there's lots it's like of that's things where they put you all get that there. stuff. That, like we don't like to still talk about this, but, but it, it's still here if you need it. Yeah, if you want it. Yeah. Um. All right. So Chad writes. Hey, Remap Radio, loved your breakdown of System Shock as a fan of the original and the remake. One of the things that stands out to me looking at the game now is how 90s the whole thing is. You can get rollerblades, monster types and weapons are ripped straight out of Star Trek, uh, TNG. Hell, the spark beam is a straight up phaser in the original game. And I found while working on getting the source code of the game running on modern systems that the player, the player character's name is Sonic the Hedgehog if you manage to spawn in another player and click them. All of that said, what other games do you think uh, do you think of that also capture the vibes of their decade in a bottle? Games mm. that capture the vibe of their decade in a bottle. So, <laughs> for for largely for Hard. worse, Call of Duty: Modern Warfare yeah. is the two thousands. Yeah. Is the two thousands? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like it's the game looks like there's a entire section that's like lively footy, footage because that's how people are consuming like war video and war news. Uh, right. You know, it's got the it's got the paranoia. It's got the you know, there the the next terrorist attack could be nuclear. It's it's got all of it. <laughs> oh, God. That's really good. I think you might have nailed it there, though. Because <laughs> it's hard to find too many games that hit that mark, especially once you start talking about is it capturing the zeitgeist of, like, the broader culture? Or is it just, like, you know, that platform and what what it represented at that time? Um, like, part of what's unique about Call of Duty is I think it also taps into, pop like, actual culture. Yeah. Um, not just, like, what was trendy in game design at the time. This is a take I've heard before. I forget who it was from. Actually, might have been Austin. Not sure, but like, I think the two. I think the twenty tens was Umaranki generation. I think that game is fucking really smart and captures the vibes of the mid twenty tens like extremely, extremely well, uh, and and basically like perfectly bottles them uh, as mm. someone who grew up during the twenty tens. Uh, um, I think the Umarangi generation does a very good job of 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 really like get, la- landing that well. It's also trying like I don't know how much Call of like Call of Duty. I feel like that makes more sense in hindsight than it did at the time. Now, obviously, Call of Duty is like pulling from that um, to some degree, but I feel like it's really crystallized in hindsight how much it ends up being reflected. Well, I think that's the, like that, I think that's kind of true. Era. Like what System Shock is doing as well. It's just like it's it is pulling from what is in the air in the nineties. Yeah, I think that that's the thing about modern warfare is like, of course, it captures the vibe of the mid 2000s. The mid 2000s was defined by like the 2000s were defined by 9-11 and the war in Iraq, like respectively. Um, And so, like, of course, a game trying to do that captures the captures the era perfectly. Um, Let's see here. What was the. God, we got a very good email about Cobra after my rant about it. Oh, uh, I don't think about it. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so, so uh, Kaylee writes, 
I'm sorry. This is both not a question and basically novel link, but I just wanted to send some info about Cobra as I have the displeasure mm. of working at a Cobra administrator. For our international oh, listeners. no. Cobra is this nightmare bucket you fall into where we have private health insurance in the United States. This is what provides all your ongoing medical care that you would get not in an ER. It is uh, very expensive on the individual marketplace, and it is often tied to your employer. But when your employer no longer employs you, you get an option to buy your 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 employer plan via a program called Cobra. Uh, I forget what it stands for, like continuation of benefits, something, something. It's, I don't know. But it sucks. Yeah, Ren. Some people may remember uh, that earlier this year, uh, I did a little stream asking folks to help me pay off some medical debt. Uh, that medical debt uh, happened because I forgot to apply for COBRA and went to the doctor accidentally uh, during the one month between stopping working at uh, Kotaku and starting at Waypoint. Uh, that ended up being a $2,000 bill um, uh, when I just had zero savings. Uh, and so that is what happens if you do not get COBRA. Um, Rob? Uh, so uh, Kaylee continues... Cobra is a nightmare and my job sucks, but over the last few years, I've worked my way up from a basic customer service agent to a senior account manager, largely unintentionally, so my brain is stuffed with a lot of insurance information. We license our software from Wex, the very company I was complaining about, so I have a good idea mm -hmm. of what you're dealing with. Uh, first, the $20 payment fee should only apply to individual monthly payments. Uh, if you set up an auto pay in their system, it shouldn't charge a fee after the first month. I'll tell you this, Wex doesn't want me to auto pay. <laughs> It's oh it's God. like no. I will only take uh you and I can't pay in advance. I can't be like, can you take the next two payments right now? No, won't take that. However, uh, I always recommend to setting up a bill, a pay with your bank. They'll mail a check to Wex on your behalf every month. Uh, they don't charge for it. Uh, oh, Kato says it's Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. Well, that explains a lot. What? Yeah, that's why it's just it. Cobra. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a continuation. So it's just it was some sort of like law that was passed. Yeah, it's the law that, that made it happen is why it's called Cobra Benefits. But here, here's the real <laughs> thing. Here's, here's why Cobra universally sucks. Unfortunately, most insurance carriers barely understand Cobra and their systems can't always handle it because it doesn't operate like normal insurance. Insurance companies hate dealing with Cobra because they aren't set up for Cobra. Your insurance might randomly terminate. This is particularly common with companies who have outsourced, underpaid, or uh, just have incompetent HR teams. There are a bunch of things that could potentially fuck up Cobra enrollment if the HR team isn't paying attention. It's not a guarantee, but it's a possibility. Uh, if you have any big appointments looming in the future, then I recommend calling the member services number on your insurance card about a week in advance to make sure your coverage is active. Uh, if it isn't, call Wax. They can reactivate it. Uh, but it, like one of the things that just jumped out at me in this email is the degree to which I had assumed that it was still basically my my insurance. Because you're, you're on the same plan, like the coverage mm -hmm. is still there. But the fact that it like enters this weird like uh limbo state of insurance where yeah. like it's not it's not your insurance company dealing with it anymore it's like it's cobra and that's a totally different thing and this would explain why i continually now have this fear of like i'm actually kind of looking forward to when my insurance runs out uh because like at least then i will know where I stand, <laughs> I will get different insurance because right now I'm like in this Schrodinger, like Schrodinger's like, uh, do I have 
do I have insurance? I think I do. I paid the money. But every time I go into that website, I feel like, do I really have insurance? You don't look is, like is you don't real? look like an insurance website. Yeah. Right, because they're they're not yeah, they're not the ones providing the insurance. They're just standing in as the people paying the premiums in like a weird way, right? Right. Right, right, right. Bizarre. Nightmarish. Terrible. Love to Awful live system. in this country. Ever, love, literally love everybody, USA. everybody hates <laughs> yeah. it. Like the insurance, the insurance companies hate well, it. This was offered as Be like a fix using it. Like, hate it. Isn't it horrible that when you lose your job, you lose your insurance? Congress is on it, baby. We got Cobra <laughs> now. And what it amounts to is, would you like to pay considerably more for the same coverage via a really shitty portal? And not really like it, you, you get the Cobra offer a lot of times when you can you cannot afford this full premiums. Uh, it's it's a it's a brutal system and it it's full of that that notion of the the time tax that exists throughout like the American healthcare system where it's like you just have to dedicate, you know, hours to verifying that stuff works or, mm. you know, to, to, to like, you know, patching up the gaps in your coverage. Yeah. Um. Can I read something extremely funny? Yes. So I looked up the Wikipedia <laughs> entry for the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1985. 85. It was it was it was brought it was brought uh, originally uh, introduced by uh, Daniel Rotenskowski, Democrat from Illinois. My apologies. <laughs> da- Daniel David Rotenskowski was the United States representative for Chicago, serving for 36 years from 1959 to 1995. The 1995, when he, he stopped being representative in 1995, very important. He became one of the most powerful legislators in Congress, especially in marriage and taxation. He was imprisoned in 1996. <laughs> 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 oh, my Hang God. Hang on, though. Did he deserve to be or the FBI just set him up? Uh, uh political career, however, ended abruptly in 94 when he was indicted on corruption charges related to his role in the Congressional Post Office scandal. What was that? What? I used to know what the shit was. Congressional Post Office scandal? Was the discovery of corruption amongst various Congressional Post Office employees and members of the House investigated in 91 to 95, uh, climaxing in House uh, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dan Rotzenkowski. Uh, Pleading guilty in 1996 reduces charges of mail fraud. Um, mail fraud. Uh, <laughs> they were accused of heading a conspiracy to launder post office money through stamps and postal vouchers. Ratzenkowski <laughs> pleaded guilty in 96 to mail fraud and was sentenced to 18 months in prison. Oh, do you want? Hold yep. on. Do you want me to give you another kicker? Yeah. You want another one? <laughs> in 2000, just. Just before he left office, U.S. President Bill Clinton, Mr. Saxophone himself, pardoned Ratzenkowski, which became part of a larger controversy about Clinton's pardons. <laughs> Just how many links oh do you think we have to get through on this page? To get to the Watergate article, how how <laughs> many how many of these little one, blue two, names one. is it in there? One, two. Oh, okay. It is in the it is in the the bottom thing. Federal prosecution of public corruption in the United States. Yeah, hmm. yeah. 
Which... Oh, charges against him included keeping ghost employees on his payroll, paying salaries at taxpayer expense for no-show jobs, using congressional funds to buy gifts Was such as chairs. Cool? And... <laughs> using congressional funds to buy gifts such as chairs and ashtrays for friends. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Diverting <laughs> taxpayer funds to pay for vehicles used for personal transportation, tampering with a grand jury witness, and what? trading in trading in officially purchased stamps for cash at the house post oh, office. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> okay. Fuck Real yeah. small time shit. What? Incredible. <laughs> well, okay. Here's the thing, Rob. I do think that those ashtrays and uh, what was the other what was the other word you used, uh, Patrick? Chairs? Uh, chairs? Chairs, chairs. Um, there is a chance that those ashtrays and chairs did cost tens of thousands of dollars. That is, sure. that is, that is a yeah. possibility. Um, yeah. God. Yeah. Oh, wow. Following his political career, he operated Dan Ross Associates, Chicago-based legislative and government affairs firm. He also worked as a political commentator. To where? As well as a guest lecturer at Northwestern University and a senior fellow at Loyola University of Chicago. Rosenkowski received a federal pension of between $97,000 and $125,000 per year. <laughs> Congressional pensions are based on years of service. And Rosenkowski is one of the few congressmen who have served 36 years in Congress. Jesus. Go to jail for 18 months, still get that pension. What a it's life. It's an incredible gig. America. It is, it is an incredible gig. Uh, oh, they're, they're, they're very insulated from... Any of the stuff uh, that happens to <laughs> to people outside of outside of Congress, um, yes, boy, I, that's a that that is that is Wild. an odd one. Yeah. Uh, all right. Last email here. Uh, let's see. Comes from Ewan. The last year of narrative games had made me feel dumb, and I don't know what to do with this information. <laughs> When Patrick tweeted last year that he had finished Signalis, I replied asking what he thought of the story as I felt like I completely lost the narrative thread as that game drew to a close. It made me feel slightly better that he had also looked up some interpretations of the story, but this has been a thing with me for a while and has led me to believe I just don't know how to understand stories like this. I had a similar experience with Norco, where I enjoyed a lot of that game and thought I was following it pretty well until the end where I completely lost track of what was happening and was left very confused by the end. In the previous, did I write this letter? Did I, like, in the previous iteration me? of the did podcast, I, I guess, where I mentioned how deeply this game is steeped in the history of the song Gothic literature, and so at the time I put my confusion down to just not having the touchstones I needed to fully get everything out of it. I also have to mention Kentucky Route Zero, a game that I adore aesthetically, but had absolutely no idea what that game is trying to do or say outside the very obvious plot threads. The main character being tied to labor because of medical condition, the parallels to the American healthcare system, etc. I've been telling people for years that I thought the story in that game was just poorly told, but after listening uh, to some of the Eggplant, the Secret Lies of Games podcast on the game, I very quickly found that I was missing so many references in both games and literature, as well as just an understanding of how to understand magical realist narrative. My analysis of the game was incorrect, but I would have no way of knowing that I was incorrect. You don't know what you don't know, I suppose. It feels worse for me because story is one of the predominant things I look for in games. Citizen Sleeper was my favorite game last year. I'm here for anything Life is Strange-esque. But it feels like anything uh, that even vaguely starts to flirt with metaphor or symbolism just seems to completely pass me by. I have no training or education in media criticism and would love to improve, uh, but most conversations around this tend to end up with people, possibly correctly, shitting on the YouTube plot analysis videos for not getting it. Usually the same movies, games that I also didn't get. Annihilation being a very recent example for me. 
so I don't really know where to go from here. As someone who's trying to develop any level of critical thinking around stuff like this, I have to ask, am I just bad at this? How do you critically evaluate a game when you might just be missing knowledge that shows the core of what the game is trying to do? How the hell do you learn how to understand narrative on a deeper level than what it shows up front? Buddy, I've done this for decades now, and I haven't learned. (laughs) So you're fine. Don't worry. Like Norco, Citizen Sleeper, Kentucky Road Zero, I... It's so like that's I, I, honestly that that letter could have been written by me in which like I appreciate reading deeper thematic analysis, the broader med like all and like it goes just right past me. But I love reading about it. I love like listening to people like Austin's essay on Kentucky Route Zero. Fantastic. Was I thinking any of those thoughts playing the game? I was not. I was not. <laughs> I was not. Um, and I said. Do, I don't think games can operate at different levels just because you don't necessarily like I think Kentucky Road Zero is still a fantastic, thoughtful, interesting, nuanced game, even if you don't understand like the really nuanced, like thematic underpinnings that it's playing with. Um, and I think games at their best, stories at their best reward that deeper understanding, that deeper meaning, but don't necessarily punish if you're sort of just dealing with what's right in front of you. And that's often how I encounter and deal with stories. It's like the thing that's in front of me, the stuff that's around it, I fill in later when I talk to people about it or read about it or listen about it. So I, I interpret stories very similarly to this person. So I think there's 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 two things here. Um, as, as someone who, you know, I, I think it would be fair to say that media criticism basically uh, – shapes the way that I see the world fundamentally uh, and is kind of like the core of everything that I do. Um, One, reading, just like reading a lot of criticism is like the best way to learn how to do it. The best way to learn how to do crit is to just read a bunch of it uh, and then practice. Um, But another thing that I'll say is like not every game clicks for every person. Not every game clicks for every critic even. Like you know, there's tons of games that like I could not write about, but I'm very impressed when other people do. You may have just stumbled upon like Signalis, Norco, and like a, a handful of games that like do narrative stuff that you're not as equipped to handle. And like that's fine. That's not like that's not like a problem with you. Because the other thing to remember is that like games are designed to be experienced and read like in conversation with one another. Like art is not an individual practice. You have not failed Norco by playing Norco and not like 100% getting it because like you're supposed to talk about Norco with your friends. You're supposed to read criticism about the thing so you can actually like have a more full relationship to it. That's really the thing. If you want a more full relationship to games like Norco and like a more fuller understanding of them, then have those conversations and like, I think that's a totally fine way to do it. If you want to do media criticism yourself, if you want to have this like relationship to games on like a, a personal level, then like at that point, you just have to practice it. At, at, at least in my experience. So I think uh, the one thing I'll say is it sounds like you and just like would like to not be missing, missing the point so consistently or feeling like feeling like they're missing the point so consistently. I think my like my advice would be to a degree like, Playing around in that space is useful, uh, you know, the second what what Ren said. I think the other thing to bear in mind is, like, it, it just becomes a, a, a reflex to think about, like, 
we're talking about like what like what's happening with metaphor or, what, or or symbolism or something like a lot of times what we are getting at is there's both the story being told and then there's the what else is it about beyond like the characters on the beyond the characters in the story beyond like the events of the plot what is this about what is it trying to get at that is larger than just the story that would connect to a wider audience and frequently you will find these things are not uh, these things are about other things that people are what is resonating with people is not just the story that is in front of them, but the things that are the, the things there that are uh, reacting to a time and place like the example I will like really popular example like. Die Hard great movie there's a lot of action movies why is die hard why was die hard so big why is why is die hard like regarded as an all-time great film uh it's not because like damn it's just so it's just so exciting the concept of like you know a cop on the loose and a skyscraper full of terrorists like that is a movie that is in it like the entire story the structure of the movie is about uh like a sense of masculine displacement in the 1980s. That movie begins with like John mm-hmm. McClane going to see his wife, who was a career woman uh, working for a massive, like foreign multinational corporation. And he is the most like aggressively blue collar, basic ass guy uh, that, that you can imagine. And she has stepped into this world that has left him behind. And he's reacting defensively and hostily to it. And the entire movie takes like is set up to both allow them to work through those issues and for this guy to find like where he sits in this world and find like value for himself against this backdrop that is what like die hard is about that die hard's also the like dropping the you know <laughs> the bomb through the air shaft to take out the anti-tank guns but like when we're asking about like why do people love this movie why why is it so resonant it's because like there's tons of movies about like only one badass dude can take out all these all these terrorists, all these bank robbers. There's tons of movies like that. Why is Die Hard the like common frame of reference? Because it's about something really different. Well, and the thing I'll say, Rob, is that like sometimes learning what the thing is about by listening to a critic then becomes the key to understanding what the plot is actually doing. Right? Like And why you reacted to it the way you yeah. did, right? So I think like part of what I would reverse for this person is like you know, I joke about the feeling of like feeling like kind of I, I I deeply, deeply feel this like where you can feel like you're kind of stupid because you didn't get it. But for me, it's more just like you had a reaction to those themes. You had a reaction to like you did. Mm-hmm. You just you just didn't have the language to understand why you did. And it's like the way those metaphors are working, you don't necessarily have to have the skeleton key that unlocks w- what was all there and why was it there? Because the, often the greatest works like. It's all an amalgamation of that. And then you have a reaction to it. And so when Rob is talking about like, I think people, that is a reason Die Hard is a classic and a part of a reason that it more resonates with people. I don't know that everyone is going to articulate exactly what you said, but when they, when you are, when you hear that interpretation of the work, it gives you a better understanding of why it means something to you. And so I would reframe it as feeling, don't feel stupid. It's just like, it helps enrich your own understanding of a reaction to a work is often how I frame it to myself. Uh, yeah, you don't you don't feel stupid because you can't code a video game. That that it takes work. Right. It's a practice. It is you, I can't paint, but I can take a photograph because I studied that, right? Like uh and like it's a thing that unfortunately I feel like doesn't get 
you don't get you get a lot of like literary criticism in in school but like most of the like v- uh, visual and other media criticism that i got was in college and stuff because i went to art school specifically right like the idea Whoa. of critique as a as a thing to study in and of itself was like a thing that i got in my education and it like there's books out there about about different frames of mind to critique from and also how critique kind of uh shapes your ideas like there's like there's like a whole study of just what critique is right so like it does it's not like you sh- yeah you should never feel like you're missing something in like a like it's because like it's it's much more um it's much more practice than you than it's it can seem right like honestly a lot of times when we do like movie stuff like i i have to like watch scenes over again because i like have mm-hmm. like a reaction to a thing and i'm like wait what what happened there and like it's not like it's it it, it and this like it, you it, people dif- different people engage with it in different ways. It's just like some people like uh need to take copious amounts of notes in a certain way to even see like that critique. So like when you're seeing the kind of finished product too, it can feel like wow, this person was so good at like seeing all of this in one go or whatever. And it's like no, it's a lot of work to get to the finished product of a written piece. It's a lot of work to think through those thoughts because it's not like instantly like i played it once and like i instantly got all of that it's like you play it you talk about it you mull it over in order to get to those like end states of of like a formed a, a formed thought of criticism so if you're just playing the game through one time you might not necessarily uh ever have those types of thoughts without having the structure of, like, I'm going to sit and consider these things after the fact, you know? Uh, one one other thing that I'd like to say is that, like, well, actually two. One, uh, the best advice for understanding media is to just consume a lot of it and, like, with intention. If you played Norco and were like, man, I wish that I had gotten all of those, like, references to, like, Southern Gothic literature or, like, had understood what the game was doing, the, the answer to, like, how do I like understand those references is just like go read stuff that isn't games like i i think that like faulkner is really good if you found yourself interested by those themes or like stirred by them even if you didn't like fully get them just go look up that work and like engage with it and the last thing i'll say is that i think that i hear a lot of people be like i don't have training in this because what an actual like training in criticism looks like they are imagining a different thing than what it is in my experience um you know i did a degree that was like a lot of media studies and a lot of english literature crit um that's that's what my degree was in um those classes are not like someone explaining theory to you nine times out of ten that may be graduate school in graduate school you might have to be like explain how you're reading theory but the actual thing that those courses are is conversations about the thing that you're reading with a group of people who are all like trying to do it very intentionally that's how you learn how to do criticism is it's like through conversations and through like a bunch of people talking about the same text that they were really struggling to understand and then like putting together a piecemeal version of it and then eventually you get good enough at that that like you can start doing synthesis work and synthesis work is where like criticism really begins. And it's like very fun. Um, love so synthesis work. The, but the thing, the thing I'll say there though, is like, I do think like you can get there through reading a lot of stuff and like reading crit, but like 
I think this is one of those places where like it is incredibly useful to have gone through a 100 level English lit course. Yeah. It is it is incredibly useful because like one of the things that's there is like you're going to read a lot of like big important books, but the things they're so well studied books that like there's really nothing new under that sun. The job of like a professor there is to let y'all kind of be naive dumbasses about like lit but then also like learn oh but there's all this other stuff there as well like here are the things that like critics have uncovered and we're going to apply this to like these really common reference points that are useful to illustrate a bunch of things and that's why like the the same books tend to get taught in these things over and over again in part because the ground is so well trod that it is a very useful like teachable like story or teachable book uh because like it is you know there is it's a good story that people react to just as like a reader but then also it's very easy to immediately like say okay well what were some things that confused you and then you open that world to you you open up the the world of like crit uh that that exists out there and those those intro level courses are are worth their weight in gold because it is like you yes you are in there with a big group of people who broadly also don't have other training in this and one person there frequently is like, okay, well, I've, I have done a lot of this stuff. This is all very familiar. And they're not there to just like, like vomit criticism at you or like spew theory at you. It is to basically help you draw the, like draw the connections between like, here's the story you read. Here's this body of critical work out there and, and, and criticism that like, and here's what the work of criticism and like, uh, interpretation is and you it, it's a very it's a very good sandbox for that and that's very hard to like reproduce as an autodidact yeah the one other thing is that time is the critic's friend time is always the critic's friend. The, the the longer you've had to think about something the better the piece will probably be um this is why like this is one of the reasons that i've like complicated feelings about uh being in media and like doing podcasts is that like my best work happens when I actually give it the time to like think about things. And I think that I say stupid shit on into a microphone all the time. I regret half of the shit that I say into microphones, especially on our like <laughs> discussion podcasts, because like I just haven't had enough time to think about it. I have not given myself enough time and like energy to like actually think about the thing to the degree that I would want to. Um, and so give yourself like, if you leave Norco and are like, damn, I didn't get Norco maybe just like step away from Norco for a few months or like read some crit on it and then return to it because like we are very much in a culture that disincentivizes replaying and rereading uh, or like replaying, rewatching, rereading um, and or sees it as like a means to an end in terms of like, I like this content, rom, 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 uh, as opposed to like, I would like to engage with this again. I would like to try this thing again and see if I get it better this time. And chances are, you probably will. And you will like see things from the beginning of the text onwards that you like didn't notice before. Uh, last thing I'll say on this point, like these are like, I think everyone who goes to college ends up with complicated feelings about their textbooks. Cause you're, you get gouged on them. They're expensive, etc. cetera. Uh, Norton literary anthologies are incredible. Like books, they are incredible. Like this is the one thing where it's not enough frequently to like, I'm going to go 
you know, buy bits and pieces of the canon and like read the important novels. The thing that's really useful about stuff like the 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 Norton anthologies is they are like heavily footnote footnoted, annotated in line. So you're reading the like works that tons of people have studied, but then also you have markup on them to like highlight, hey, here are the connections that are being drawn. Here's what this is a reference to. And that unpacks a lot of like that unpacks a lot of stuff uh, to sort of illustrate like what is happening, uh, you know, in the subtext of stuff that is, that is easy to easy to miss. Uh, so that's, that's my one, that's, that's my one thought If you're like, okay, but like, seriously, how could I, how could I at home, like help hone, hone this sense? I do think those like Norton annotated anthologies are really useful to sort of understand how, like, uh, sort of piercing the, the layer of the text and getting into, subtext and and criticism so that's that's what that's the final that's the final bit of like instrumental advice uh i can i can give you uh and with that i think that will conclude another episode of remap radio the theme song is moments pause by Tumelo. you can check out his work at tumelomakes.bandcamp.com you can follow everything we do at remap radio on twitch blue sky twitter youtube blue sky we should do something with blue sky no 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 we're All good right. I am now cross-posting everything that goes on on Twitter to, mm, to Blue Sky. That's so, great. Um, so that is that's. Don't worry, it's not just one retweet. Beautiful. <laughs> whatever they call it over there, we're good. Uh, and at some point, maybe we'll 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 spin up a Mastodon thing because I'm doing one. I might as well just paste it to, to the other. So we'll we'll look into and that. What's weird we is they're all turning different audiences. There's there's mutuals I have who remain on Mastodon. Don't see them anywhere else. Yep. They're having yep. they're having a they're having a grand old time. But either way, uh, once again we rely on our audience for support. And you can sign up to become a backer by going to remapradio.com and following the links and instructions you see there. The basic plan provides access to an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as the ver- the projects we carried over uh, to remap, including this week sports, uh, where we discussed uh college football, soccer, uh you know, moves in the NBA with Rowan Kaiser, uh, my, old, my old comrade from from 3MA. She came through to uh, chat chat sports with us, uh, and your you know your support also lets us set time aside for streaming. Uh, this week, Kato's Final Fantasy Tactics Odyssey continues. That is that is happening still every morning. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll also be able to check out. Kato and Ren are continuing to lay the groundwork for uh, the advent of a new Armored Core. <laughs> Woo! And Which... Kato and I are continuing our playthrough of Baldur's Gate. And as I alluded to last time, some mean teenagers uh, had my character <laughs> thrown in jail by <laughs> credulous adults. Uh-huh. All the kids in that game are mean. Uh, it's great. I love it. It's it's awesome. <laughs> uh, and I believe as, as you are listening to this, you might be able to catch Kato and Patrick. Doing a little more Kingsfield. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the last third of that game. You know, I think we've we've made a bunch of progress. We are. We are. We are closer to the the end than to the. I looked up a like a, but I, I kind of. I don't know if we're gonna beat that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it'll be. It'll be I think, great. I think we're gonna. I'm fairly. Sh- I, I did some research. We might have to like go find. We might be leaving to go find some yeah. items. And then come, come back. back. I don't okay. know. That, and then come back. I got to do some more research before we start All that right. stream. But I had a, a friendly, uh, a friendly uh, viewer send some tips over. We got to go find that dwarf. 
the dwarf. I we gotta told go find you the about the dwarf. Uh, I was like, look, our buddy yeah. is somewhere out there. He's got shit for us, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, he. It's called a repair feature because apparently, <laughs> right. apparently, the sword we're singing, swinging right now, has the hot like its its durability goes fast, yeah. and the moment any of it goes, like the weapon is yes. Oh shit. So anyway, yes. Look forward to <laughs> more of that. Um, double from software. Um, this week and and recently here at Remap. All right, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Remap Radio. Until then, thanks so much for choosing to spend some of your time with us. And fuck capitalism, go home. <laughs> <laughs>